This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 444 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Lieutenant Colonel Steve Burgess. Now, Steve is a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, not only at the regular level, but at the special operations level as well. But he also was integral in developing the combatives program. So we discuss a host of topics from his own personal journey into the martial arts and the military, combining that in the combatives program, in the incredible tournaments and competitions that they hold, encompassing all the ranks and genders, martial arts and law enforcement, and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your comments and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, lifting it, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 444 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing men and women stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Burgess. Enjoy. So, Steve, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you very much, James, for having me. And I also want to say thank you to Kevin. So before we kind of dive into your story, how do you guys know each other? Well, I actually um, uh, met Kevin about uh, a year and a half ago uh, when I uh, traveled uh, from Ontario to uh, Alberta. Uh, to Edmonton, the uh, where uh, where Kevin lives, and uh, I met him there at a uh, at a spring, or I should say, a, a summer training camp uh, that we had for uh, for grappling. Because uh, Kevin is a uh, is a, a very good uh, good wrestler, and uh, and he's also a good uh, jiu-jitsu practitioner. Uh, and as you know, I'm a, a black belt in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and a black belt in uh, judo as well. Uh, so we uh, we got together. 
uh, to uh, to actually run a, a training camp for the uh, the soldiers at uh, Garrison um, Edmonton in Alberta. Uh, so that's how I first met Kevin. Uh, and it was uh, it was a great experience and uh, brings a wealth of knowledge, uh, you know, to the uh, to the grappling arts. Uh, and uh, and that was really kind of the first time that we uh, actually connected. Beautiful. Well, he was instrumental to us connecting. So I want to say thank you to him. Now, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, well, right now I'm actually uh, located in uh, Ottawa uh, in Ontario, Canada. So uh, so quite north of you. Uh, and I think we're probably a little bit colder than you right now. Yes. Uh, but, but yeah. <laughs> We are slowly starting to warm up, so that's always a good thing here in Canada. So we do get some nice warm weather, but uh, but we're in that kind of lull between the uh, the cold winter and uh, and spring almost upon us. So so I'll keep my fingers crossed that we'll warm up here soon. Beautiful. And just before we get into the kind of timeline stuff, um, how have you guys done this last year in Ottawa area specifically? Uh, so you mean in reference to the uh, the ongoing pandemic and, yes. and things like? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's been tough. I mean, I think uh, we've been really been um, trying to working through it just like everybody else. Pretty much. I think it's been uh, uh, pretty even across the board as far as the uh, the challenges. Uh, I mean, you know, I think everybody was, you know, you know, caught unaware of uh, just how difficult this would become, uh, especially as it uh, gets protracted over time. Uh, it, it just really starts to uh, really, you know, uh, uh, play hard in the mind. Uh, you know, we're going through different kinds of rolling lockdowns and uh, and just trying to, you know, maintain all of those uh, like force health protection measures and and just making sure that we're staying safe and uh, and keeping others safe as well. So uh, I, I think we're holding up reasonably well. I mean, uh, you know, Canadians are pretty hardy when it comes to that kind of stuff, and uh, and we we try to uh, you know follow the rules and uh, and know that you know there will be an end in sight. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, part of that comes back down to, uh, to mindset and, you know, things that we'll likely talk about uh, during this interview. Uh, but I, I think we're, we're holding up OK, uh, but we're definitely uh, looking forward to the end of it to, uh, to come. And I'm, and I'm always inherently a very optimistic person. And I think that uh, I think we'll get there sooner rather than later. But we'll just uh, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think once summer rolls in, it's, it's going to be harder <laughs> to say it's still a thing. I think, you know, people are going to they're gonna be ready to, to, to get out there and, you know, get on with their lives again. But I think the, the mindset stuff is going to be very interesting how that parallels. Um, but before we get there, so let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, well, um, I was born in a, a little town called uh, Windsor, Scotia. Uh, which is in the, uh, the on the east coast of Canada, and um, and it's a, a very it's just a small province, and uh, a lot of um, like we're kind of you know, obviously a, a coastal province, uh, so a lot of farming and fishing and things like that. And uh, so I'm actually uh, one of two. Uh, I have a, a younger brother; he's uh, 13 months younger than myself. Uh, his name is Tony. Uh, he's actually a police officer. Uh, in, in Edmonton, uh, he works for the uh, the Alberta Sheriff's Department. Uh, but he was also in the military, uh, like myself, uh, as a military police officer. Uh, so he's he's done both of those things. Uh, so we have a very uh, very strong connection to uh, service, and uh, you know uh, whether it's serving um, you know Canadians within the military or you know servicing our, our local communities. Uh, so uh, so my my uh, my mother, uh, you know, she did various uh, various jobs and things like that. But for most of the time. When 
when we were growing up. Uh, she was pretty much uh, stay at home and that uh, to, to take care of us and help raise us. And uh, and my father, uh, he actually worked for the provincial government for the uh, Department of Transportation. Uh, so he did that for a, for a number of years um, and uh, before he uh, passed away a few years ago. Uh, and uh, he also came from a very um, a big farming family. So we uh, so I kind of grew up in that kind of uh, rural setting, uh, you know, farm family, um, you know, and things like that. So it kind of gave us that kind of um, uh, that kind of perspective on the world. Uh, and the uh, as far as the location, uh, Windsor um, is an area we call the, uh, the Annapolis Valley. Uh, and uh, it's just outside of the capital city of, uh, of Nova Scotia, Halifax. Beautiful. Well, with growing up on a farm, I, I did the same thing. I grew up on a horse farm. My dad was a veterinarian. Um, you you get that exposure to yeah, that slight ruggedness, you know, where rain isn't going to bother you. You got you got a you know a, a field to to plow, or you got to muck out stables, or whatever it is. When you look back now, how much did that upbringing on the farm specifically p- play into your success in the military? Um, I think uh, I probably the, the, the biggest thing that taught me uh, was the value of hard work uh, and determination. Uh, now, like I'm like, I don't know how the um, uh, the American military uh, compares, you know, specifically in this respect. But I know that within the Canadian military, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, what we refer to as maritimers. Uh, it's us folks that come from the East Coast. Uh, of the country, uh, a lot of us, uh, we do have a very high percentage of us that actually do join the military. Uh, and and we're, we're always kind of known for that, um, uh, that kind of down to earth, uh, ruggedness, uh, determination. Um, sometimes, you know, it may not be the, you know, the, the, the fastest or the strongest, but, uh, but we definitely develop a, um, a no quit attitude. So I think that not only for being a maritimer uh, from the East Coast, but also, um, you know, growing up around a, a farming environment, I, I think it taught us that. I think both my brother and I uh, is that, uh, you know, hard work is uh, very prized and, and highly valued uh, and, uh, and teaches determination and that kind of, uh, you know, that no quit attitude. So I, I think that's probably what the biggest effect on me was from, um, uh, from my psychological development. Yeah. Well, it's, when I look back now, I mean, I think about it as a time as a young man, but also I think the the baseline, your baseline of discomfort was slightly different than someone who grew up in suburbia. I'm not saying that's any better or worse, but it just is when you grow up on a farm and you have to wake up at the crack of dawn and, you know, farm work isn't easy and, and the British weather sucks. Um, you know, I look back now and I'm like, you know, it, it really did create a, a level of misery that I took through the rest of my life. Yeah, I know. I, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's always work to be done. Uh, so you don't um, you don't have the luxury of not doing it. So you learn just to kind of to, to, you know, to dig down deep and just and just keep going uh, to accomplish tasks. So I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I want to speak on my brother's behalf, but I, I think that that's what both of us kind of uh, pulled away from all of that as far as, um, you know, learning how to work through that kind of uh, like tough ruling schedules. Uh, and just know that, you know, work has to be done and somebody has to do it and and uh, and you just get on with it. So uh, and when I look back at it now, like now that I'm older, I, I look back at all that and I realize that it was one of the most important uh, lessons that I ever learned. Uh, so I highly prize it uh, and, and realize that, you know, at the time it was just a lot of work and, uh, and just doing that thing and, and growing up. Um, but now I realized uh, just uh, the dividends that it paid off for me uh, later in life as I, uh, you know, became, uh, you know, a man and, and, and went into a, a professional career like the military. 
Absolutely. Yeah, because looking back, just gleaning from that now, I mean, I can't recreate that with my son. You know, I live in this beautiful suburban neighborhood in Florida where there's there's no recreating an English farm. So it's just trying to find those elements where, you know, I can take him out of his comfort zone, not deliberately, you know, making him unhappy, but take him into a place where he's not around some of his creature comforts so he can realize that that's okay. You're going to be just fine, even though you're not enjoying, you know, not you're not at your most comfortable right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, like I have a, I have a daughter, Rose, and uh, she's actually at, um, at university right now uh, here in Ottawa. And, um, and, and it's the same thing. Like, you know, the things are, are so different uh, for her growing up. Um, you know, I mean, she obviously grew up in a military family and being around the military for pretty much all of her life so far. And, uh, and you know, she, she hasn't had the same ex- experiences that I've had. Uh, but, you know, I mean, she's obviously had her other, you know, own unique challenges as, you know, technology connects people in different ways now and and uh and people are more readily available to each other than they ever were before so i think that you know that's as you said like you know it's not the same kind of pressures and maybe the way that we were tested and and the way that we developed but they certainly have their own you know unique challenges that you know we didn't experience so so i I think it's about the um that, that balance and uh and i think that uh um you know however you achieve it is it's about trying to understand uh how to work through adversity and struggle uh, you know, regardless of what form that comes in. So definitely different, but, uh, but I, I'm sure I'm very appreciative of, um, you know, the upbringing that I had and, um, you know, very, very strong, uh, supporting family and, uh, and especially, you know, um, you know, those general life lessons that you learn, but also when I, uh, started getting involved in the, uh, in the martial arts as a, as a young child. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that. So the, one of the, the tools that I've used to, you know, get my son uncomfortable is jujitsu. And he, he did it for several years where we took a little break because he kind of got a little bit burnt out because he started at the age of, uh, five or six, I think it was. But, um, but yeah. And so what a great environment to do just that, to learn discipline, to learn respect, to learn, you know, teamwork and, and, and get comfortable being uncomfortable. So tell me about your journey as, as a child into the martial arts. Well, it, it, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, I mean, and I'll, I'll come back into this a little bit later about being learned to be comfortable to be uncomfortable. Uh, but when I when I started on it, I actually started out um, in uh, in karate. Uh, one of the uh, the Japanese styles of karate, and uh, in my small town in uh, in Windsor, Nova Scotia, um, and ironically, um, so I started way back in the 1980s. So I don't want to date myself here too much, but <laughs> I started way back in the 1980s, and that like you know, as I always like to say to the the kids that I teach now, uh, when I teach jujitsu, uh, is the um, you know so, you know there was a time before the internet, uh, and uh, and it was certainly a time before the internet. But what um, so I was uh, almost 12 years old when when I actually started uh, studying karate, and uh, and what um, what got me interested in first was I actually uh, saw a Chuck Norris movie, and uh, and I, I saw a movie of uh, Chuck. And I, if I if I'm not mistaken, I think the movie was Lone Wolf McQuaid. It was one of his original his earlier movies, and uh, and I remember uh, seeing Chuck Norris on the big screen, and and I, I knew then I was hooked. I, I I wanted to do it so badly. And uh, I remember, you know, going to my mom and, and my dad and asking, you know, hey, you know, like, you know, I'd love to study karate. I want to, you know, I want to be like Chuck Norris and, and things like that. And, and sure enough, there was a uh, there was a local karate club uh, in Windsor. And uh, and they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll take you over and try it out, see if you like it. And and I remember um, I remember walking into that uh, that first class. And like I said, I was, you know, 11, almost 12. And 
And I was not really, really big into athletics at that time. And, and, uh, and I was certainly, uh, you know, probably like a lot of young kids, um, you know, at that time, you know, I, you know, I was just, it wasn't really big into, you know, sports and training and, and all of those things. And I still remember, uh, to this, that this very day, uh, that, that first night of, uh, how hard it was, it was, it was so physically demanding. Uh, but the other thing I took away from it is that I was completely hooked. Uh, I, I knew then I wasn't sure you know, if, you know, if I would do just karate for, uh, for the rest of my life. But the one thing I knew for sure is that I would be involved in the martial arts, uh, you know, for the rest of my life, as long as I could physically do it, uh, I would be involved in the martial arts. And now we're about 38 years later and three different black belts and, uh, and, and still going, still, uh, still training every day and, and still loving it. Uh, I always tell people, um, like when you're training, uh, you know, I, and I get the question I get asked a lot is um, that I always still look like I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and they always say, you know, how do you keep that kind of interest after so long training? And I said, well, you know, I always keep the student's mind. I, I never lose that feeling that very first night when I walked into that karate class, class when I was 11 years old. I, ne- I always hold on to that feeling. And, and I always have that drive and desire to, to get better and to try to, you know, perfect technique and improve my character and, and all those things. And it was, it's just been an absolutely fascinating journey. Beautiful. Well, I, I'll tell you my, my humility story in a minute about how it's easy for me to keep a student's mind, but that's <laughs> another story. Um, which style of karate did you start with? Uh, Cheetah Roo. Ah, Okay. Yeah, so yeah, Chitaru. So it actually finds its uh, its origin in uh, in Okinawa, uh, but it's practiced widely on the uh, on the main islands of Japan. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, Chitaru was the um, uh, was the uh, style of karate that I actually practiced. Okay, and how long did you do that for? Um, I trained uh, from 1983 uh, until uh, like full time up to about 1991. Okay, beautiful. Well, then, what about at at school age? What were your career aspirations when you were, a, you know, a young man? Well, it, it, yeah, it's funny. Um, uh, for the longest time growing up, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, that's that's what I thought I would do. Uh, so that's why when I went off to university in uh, in Halifax uh, to uh, Dalhousie, um, you know, I, my the degree I was studying originally was uh, political science. Uh, ironically, though, um, you know, my specialization within my political science degree was uh, defense policy. So I didn't realize at that time it was probably foreshadowing what I would end up doing. Uh, but yeah, going as a as a teenager and as a young twenty year old, uh, yeah, I, wa- I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, but then it's, I guess, you know, as they say, you know, life happens and, and over time my interests start to wane. And then I went through a period of time when I was in university and studying that I just wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Uh, and, um, and I kept getting drawn more and more uh, uh, towards the military uh, and in service. Uh, and I don't know, again, if that had a lot to do with uh, the martial background, you know, like as, you know, as we, you know, look at the, uh, the samurai of Japan, you know, the, you know, the samurai, you know, itself, the word, uh, you know, means to serve or in servitude uh, or one who serves. Uh, so it's, you know, very militaristic, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I started to, um, as I, as I got older and into my early and mid twenties, uh, I started to really think, uh, more and more about, uh, joining the uh, Canadian armed forces. Uh, and that's where I ended up going. Beautiful. Now I know that you ended up teaching combatives before you entered the military. Before that, um, yeah, my humility story is, you know, I, I started off in Shotokan and then went to Taekwondo it was pretty successful in the sporting art of, of Taekwondo. You know, I had lots of big shiny medals and things and, 
And then I went to a boxing class and got my ass handed to me. <laughs> and then fast forward a yeah. little bit, went to a Muay Thai class and got my ass handed to me. And then went to a jiu-jitsu class and got my ass handed to me. So with, with you starting with that original karate, did you have any of those those moments where you started to realize that, you know, one style in itself didn't encompass everything that you would need to be a well-rounded fighter? Yeah, it's funny you say that because that's uh, that's exactly what happened to me. So, like I said in the uh, early 1980s uh, when I started karate, like I mean, part of it was that that was the, really the only thing that we had, uh, like around you know as availability. And, and at that time, the, you know, the mid 1980s, you know, karate was kind of the thing. You know, like uh, you know in the 1970s, it was obviously kung fu with Bruce Lee, and by the you know the late 80s and early 1990s, uh, you know, started moving towards other styles like aikido and you know things like that, and and those became very popular just because of uh, uh, you know, uh, TV and movies and, and things like that. But what I found, um, it, I ended up, you know, meeting a few folks that were uh, also, you know, heavily involved in judo and practicing judo and things like that. And um, so, you know, a couple of years into uh, into studying karate, uh, then I started to study judo as well. Uh, so I didn't give up, you know, one over the other, but I, I realized that, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, combat in general, and, you know, and when I'm teaching combatives, you know, usually um, I always break it down into uh, concepts of distance, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and people will have kind of, you know, different ways of delineating uh, distance. But generally what I'm looking at is I always look at the, uh, you know, four main distances, you know, and, and uh, you know, the first one, you know, if you're going from the furthest distance to the closest distance, um, you know, you're talking about the projectile range, which is where uh, like uh, pistols and carbines and like, you know, firearms and things like that exist. But then once you cover that range of distance, you know, that's the largest standoff distance. You get into the striking range, which is where I'd argue, you know, karate and boxing and Muay Thai and in Taekwondo and styles like that are. But then you get into that clinch range. So once you get into the clinch range, you're talking about like wrestling and judo. Like you're not on the ground yet, but you're you're standing, you're clinched up, you're locked up. Uh, and then of course the fourth range is the ground. So that's where you would see jujitsu and uh, sambo and and things like that. So I I knew that you know even though. I was, you know, studying karate and starting to get really, really good at karate, uh, you know, and competed a lot, you know, provincially and nationally and so in, in some world level. Um, I, I knew that there was, you know, there was other ranges of distance that, you know, that if I was just a pure striker that I would not necessarily be able to uh, tactically deal with if I was in that range. So if you, you know, if you kind of do the quick math on it, you know, 50 percent of those four ranges are grappling ranges, whether whether you're stand up grappling or you're on the ground grappling. So I, I, I knew that I had to start evolving. And again, this was in the, you know, the mid to late 1980s that I was doing this. So this is long before the UFC hit the, you know, hit the airwaves in, in 1993 and, and before I met the Gracies and, and things like that and started to study Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So that was, you know, quite a few years, almost a decade. Uh, prior to that. So even then, it just intuitively, I knew I had to develop um, the ability to effectively fight uh, both offensively and defensively uh, within all the ranges of distance. So from the, you know, obviously I'm focusing on the striking, clinching and, and ground ranges, you know, in, in hand-to-hand combat as a civilian. But then when I went to the military, obviously, is where I would then start to be able to uh, get some, you know, formal training in the, uh, the projectile range. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but... It does. Excellent. Thanks. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and, and I want to circle back to the clinch range because I think from the journey that I've seen and, and some of the, the jujitsu, especially that I've, you know, 
trained under, I think that the clinch range is the one that's often neglected. Now, American, you know, high school seem to do very well with wrestling and obviously, you know, sambo in Russia and judo. I think judo sadly was popular when I was a kid and I never did it and then kind of dwindled a bit in, in popularity, but another great art. But it seems to me like that's a void that is absolutely necessary in, especially in law enforcement, but also for us firefighters and, and um, you know, paramedics, because we have to restrain people sometimes, you know, that are having a medical emergency. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, um, uh, like we have an expression, uh, like in in jujitsu, in, in in Brazilian jujitsu, anyways, is that um, you know, that uh, black belts live in the transition. So what I mean by that is that um, you know really there's kind of three states of existence that you can be in when you're fighting. You can either be offensive, defensive, or transitional. So the highest risk one is transition. So if you come back, if if I, if I kind of circle back to the, the you know the ranges of distance that I was talking about. You know, that clinch range, I would argue, uh, is, is that transitional range because it's, you're at a point where you're not on the ground, you're standing, but you're also not free to easily strike and use longer range striking like, you know, punching and kicking. You know, if, if you think of like, say, if you use Muay Thai as an example and, and you look at Muay Thai, you know, the the uh, the art of eight limbs, you know, you're looking at, you know, hands, feet, elbows and knees. So. When you're clinched up, you're, you're looking at trying to off balance and control the person in close. But, you know, you could potentially, you know, use elbows. You could potentially use knees. But you also have a very, very high probability of being off balanced and taken to the ground. Even if you're not taken to the ground by your opponent, or, you know, the person you're fighting, uh, you, you could just fall. You could slip. Uh, you know, they're, you know, when you, whatever tactical environment you're operating in, you know, as we like to say, the enemy gets a vote. So you have to be very, very careful about wishing problems away. So I think that, you know, when you talk about styles and whether you're a purist, you know, for example, you know, studying, like, say, a traditional martial art or, or you know, one type of martial art that focuses, you know, on stand up vices, you know, the ground or, or vice versa. Uh, I, I kind of always look at it in terms of uh, combative systems or combatives programs. So, you know, I'll, I'll get lots of questions from people about, well, you know, like, what do you think of this system? Like, what do you think of, you know, this particular approach to, uh, you know, self-defense or combatives or, you know, whatever you want to call it? And, you know, and it's always a tough one because, you know, no system is perfect and you know they all have pros and cons to it but i think that what matters more is the environment you're operating in you know so so what i mean by that is like you know for example you know if you're fighting multiple opponents uh it's probably not a good idea to be on the ground with multiple opponents uh realistically speaking you know when you're grappling you know you're looking at kind of one-on-one you know whether you're armed or unarmed you know there's specific techniques tactics that you'll use but from an environmental perspective, you, you can't lose sight of, uh, of what's actually happening and where you're at. So if I'm fighting multiple opponents, uh, then you want to stay on your feet. Uh, you, you've got to get standoff distance and, you know, and, and you, you want to employ probably a, a weapon. Uh, you, you've got to gain some kind of a tactical advantage. So what I realized that over my martial journey, as I went from, you know, studying originally karate as a stand-up art, and then I transitioned into judo uh, with, you know, a throwing, clinching art, and then eventually to Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a ground-based fighting art. So what I didn't realize at the time was that uh, is, that's actually the definition of a mixed martial artist. So, so I ended up, you know, working intuitively through the three ranges of distance, you know, with a, with a striking art like karate, 
with a clinching art like you know uh, like judo, and then a ground-based art like uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I, I think it's 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 critically important. Um, and then you know back to what I was talking about um, uh, with respect to the uh, evaluation of a system. Well. You know, when someone says, well, you know, like, well, this system's really good and this system does that. And, and when I look at it, the very first thing I ask someone when they say that to me is, does this system address all ranges of distance? And if it doesn't, then I'm suspect. Like, it means that it's not complete and you probably need to add something. And one of the other caveats I like to to, to give people is that um, – be wary of uh, systems that will say that, well, we just don't let the fight go there. Well, you know, you can also be very unlucky too. Like, like I may like say, for example, if I say that, well, you know, I don't want the fight on the ground, so I'm just going to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to keep the fight on his feet. Well, that's great. But then there's that 5% where it, it does go to the ground, where you, you, you just, you fall, you slip, you trip. And then you're on the ground. You have to know, even if you're, you're, um, you know, your idea is to, you know, get back to your free, uh, feet as quickly as possible. That's great. But you have to be able to get there first. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, on the flip side, you know, uh, you know, a lot of grapplers like to say, especially in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they'll say that, you know, you know, 95 percent, you could argue the number, you know, a very high percentage of fights uh, end up on the ground. Well, that may or may not be true. But the last time I checked, 100 percent of all fights start on their feet. So, so even if your intent is to get it there, you have to know how to get there. So you have to have some, at least some rudimentary understanding of the stand-up game. So it's not one over the other. What makes a style or an approach uh, valid or, or a good approach is if it doesn't wish away problems and it works in the tactical environment you're trying to employ it. Yeah. No, and I've said that for a while myself, just because I'm looking back on when I was a young man. The nightclub that we used to go to, there would always be people bleeding in the streets at the end of it. It was ridiculous. People fighting over these little villages that we all lived in. Um, but, you know, sometimes the, the floor would be covered in broken pint glasses and, you know, obviously it's concrete on, on the inside and the outside. And so, yeah, jumping and pulling guard does not seem like the right one. And me, as a teenager in England, I never, ever saw a fair fight. It was never one-on-one. -on -one. It was always one dude getting jumped by three, four, five other people. So that was always kind of my thing is not negating the grappling, but to me, using the grappling to get back to your feet so that you can defend yourself against the other cowardly turds that are trying to kick you in the face. Yeah, exactly. Well, we, we have another um, expression. I, I actually uh, got this from a few of my uh, American friends in the American uh, combative systems. Uh, they always say that the, uh, uh, the person who wins the fight is the person whose buddies show up first. So as soon as, uh, you know, the other friends get involved, it's not a fair fight. Uh, so, you know, it's about keeping situational awareness as the like is the tactical environments changing uh, and then ending the fight as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible in, in a real fight. Because obviously, it, you know, I, I mean, it's not going to be sport. I know like I, I, I started like pretty much like everyone else, uh, you know, coming up through like a sport environment and competing in both, uh, um, you know, striking arts and grappling arts. Uh, but then, you know, when I uh, especially when I came into the military. Uh, started to see uh, how these types of, um, you know, martial techniques or sportive techniques uh, would be employed in uh, in high threat, high risk environments, where life and death is a proposition. Uh, so you know it changes. You know you're 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 not going to fight fair. You're you're you fight to win. Um, I, I remember. Um, you know, and uh, Miyamoto Masashi, uh, Japan's, you know, one of Japan's uh, greatest samurai, 
you know, I, and I, they were always, they always quoted as saying, I think it was like, you know, 62 fights or 62 uh, sword duels that he had or, or, you know, something to that effect. Um, you know, and it's funny when you talk about, uh, like, say, sword fighting, for example. Well, there's no lost win record. There's only winning. You know, if you, if you lose a sword fight, you lose your head. So you don't count almost win records. You know, there's only winning. So that becomes, um, you know, sort of a, a, a pillar of the combative mindset. Uh, you know, you're not there to score points. Uh, you're not there just to do okay. You have to win because your life or the person that you're with's life may depend on it. Yeah, I had a, a real eye-opening experience. Tim Kennedy and Sheepdog Response came to Ocala here, and we did their two-day Sheepdog class. And oh, I- yeah, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And I did martial arts. Like I'm not a great martial artist, but I've, I've been on and off since I was in my teens. And um, you know, just just a different mindset, like you were saying, when you're grappling, and you know, he sticks his thumb in your eye, or covers your mouth and nose, or starts banging your head into the into the mat, or you know, we throw weapons in, and you know, yeah, you, you get stabbed think- and you stop, and he's like, why why are you stopping? You're not dead. You just got stabbed. Oh my God. I, I mean, it's just so different, but I grew up in the competitive space, you know, so it really shifted my mindset to even, you know, identifying what kind of gym I wanted because I don't want, even though sports, as you said, a competition is a great place to test and, you know, uh, to, to get out of your comfort zone. You do have to be careful that you don't get sucked into that sporting realm and actually get disconnected from that self-defense element. Well, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, and, you know, and arguably, you know, and, I, and I've had this uh, discussion many times uh, with uh, friends of mine and, and other uh, colleagues over the years about, uh, you know, sport fighting uh, versus, um, you know, like real world, you know, combatives or, you know, self-defense uh, techniques, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I've had that discussion many times is that, you know, this there's always kind of this intrinsic friction between, you know, the, the, the sport fighters versus, you know, the combatives type folks. Uh, and, and I. I and it's because it gets into this discussion about, you know, like real fighting versus, you know, the sport fighting uh, with rules and things like that. Um, I, I think that the kind of my position on that has always been that it, it, to me, it doesn't have to be one over the other. Uh, to me, they're they're mutually supporting activities because I like to say that um, or the analogy I like to use is that, you know, if, if I if I put on a, you know, a, a gi, you know, like a martial arts uniform and I and I punch somebody in the face. You know, well, you know, they'll call that, a, you know, a karate technique. Or if I put on a pair of boxing gloves and I jab somebody in the face, you know, they'll call that, well, that's a jab from boxing. That's a boxing technique. Well, then, yeah, but then if I put on, uh, you know, a, um, you know, a police uniform or if I put on a military uniform and I punch somebody in the face, well, they'll call that combatives. Well, it's a punch. Like a punch is a punch is a punch. So, you know, to me, it's not one over the other. I think that what... Um, I think it's a better argument to have or a better discussion is to make sure that there always has to be rules. So, you know, I, you know, I, I, I totally got it, you know, as far as having rules to make it safe. And it's just like when you go to a range, you know, you, you could take this analogy anywhere. But you know, it's like when you go to a range to shoot. Well, you know, we don't we don't shoot people on a range. You know, you, you can't do that. You, you, you shoot metal targets, you shoot paper targets. You know, you try to make the training as realistic as possible. Uh, without actually doing it, you know, I mean, it's not the same thing. So, you, you know, you have to try to bring as much realism to it as possible. So I think how that translates into the sport piece, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll use jujitsu as an example, you know, there's like, I'm known in, in the, uh, you know, in the jujitsu world as a, as a very, um, uh, like, you know, old school type, if you will, uh, you know, high pressure, uh, type of fighter. Like, I, I'm not into the, you know, 
uh, I guess, you know, the fancy techniques and that, you know, a lot of the kids are doing nowadays. You know, when I came up, uh, you know, under the, uh, the Carlson Gracie team, um, you know, my instructor, uh, uh, Master Marcus Suarez, uh, he, you know, I, I was taught a very, very kind of, um, you know, high pressure, uh, simple techniques to be able to control a fight so that I could advance my position to eventually submit. Well, and a lot of that is because a lot of the, the folks at that time were also doing a lot of the uh, the Valley Tudo, the uh, mixed martial arts, no holds barred type fighting. So you had to you had to practice techniques that would lend themselves to a mixed martial arts environment where you could where you could strike, where you could be hit. So the way I evaluate techniques when I'm practicing them is that would I be able to defend myself if the person was striking me? Like, would I be able to do this technique? If the person was able to introduce a weapon, you know, if you take someone to the ground, well, generally, like, you know, you know, in a combative scenario, I haven't searched this person first. I don't know what they have. They could have a knife in their pocket and then I'm grappling with this person. The next thing you know, they've accessed the tool. They've, they've introduced a knife into the fight and now I'm being stabbed. So because I, I won't have time everything happens so quickly and I don't search the person first, not, not normally. So when I'm trying to evaluate what I'm going to practice from a sportive aspect is I translate in my mind, well, would I be able to modify and use this in a real fight where striking is allowed and weapons could be introduced? So that's kind of like the, the little litmus test that I do as far as how I'm evaluating whether I'm going to spend time on a technique or not. And then, um, and then just to wrap that up, uh, the, you know, as far as um, sport rules – I guess a criticism that I would have of, uh, of sport fighting. And again, I've, you know, I've done lots of it over the years and, and things like that before getting heavily into uh, to combatives training is a lot of rules sets that you see introduced, whether it's striking or grappling arts are based on making the fights exciting. So sometimes you have to suspend reality and realize that, well, you know, if striking were allowed or if this was a real fight, you know, you, you may have a lot lower percentage chance of making that work. So, so I think we have to be careful there. Uh, and, and I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think a, a lot of martial arts have gone too far on the sport of aspect to, to make the fights exciting, uh, and, and things like that. And, and, um, but to me, like when I'm fighting, I'm not there to entertain people. Like I'm there to actually win a fight. So, I, so I, I would argue that's probably my criticism, I guess, with, with sport fighting. Is it just sometimes it doesn't lend itself very well uh, to real world fighting scenarios? Yeah, well, I think especially if you think of uh, law enforcement men and women, I mean, every single time they go hands on, they're introducing a weapon into the fight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, whether yeah, like, and that's whether the the person has the weapon or the the police officers bring the weapon into the fight. Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned jujitsu, and I know that um, you actually got into it. You know, as as they say, before it was cool. <laughs> so, so tell me about yeah. that journey. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I always like to say. Is like just right before <laughs> the internet. So it's funny because when I'm uh, when I'm teaching kids classes uh, uh, in here in Ontario, uh, it's really funny because like we'll, we like I have one group of, of kids that are you know at the, in the five year range, so they're like five to seven year olds, and then I have another group that goes from like seven to fourteen. Uh, so when I'm when I'm teaching them, uh, like I'll, I'll make a reference to something, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So usually the parents will laugh or they'll get it uh, or or I'll tell them, you know, just look it up on the Internet. It, it, it is a thing, and, uh, but they're not tracking what it's so they don't you know, they realize that how old I actually am and that I was doing it long before it was uh, it was cool to do it. And uh, and I remember 
when I, uh, I, I mean, I was like everyone else, like, you know, like, you know, I was already, you know, uh, a black belt in karate and a black belt in judo and things like that. When I first heard of the Gracie's, you know, and, I, and like everyone else, uh, you know, you know, I, I saw the, the, the first UFC and, uh, and it was just amazing, you know, seeing this little guy hoist in there and he's, you know, he's beating everyone up and he's, and he's taking people to the ground and he, and he's, and he's utilizing, you know, very limited amounts of striking, but a lot of grappling technique. And, and I think that, you know, without getting into the whole striker versus grappler thing. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, I was like most people, like even, even though I was already doing judo, there's always this kind of perception that, you know, that the grappling arts weren't really the same as like real fighting arts, like striking, you know, that, you know, striking would make the big difference and yeah, it can. Uh, but, but, I think, you know, obviously what the Gracies did is they, they demonstrated that, you know, grappling was an integral part of, of fighting and that if you didn't know how to grapple, that you would, you know, severely limit your chances of actually winning a real fight if you were allowed to do anything you wanted, you know, whether you were choosing striking or grappling. So, so I think that, so I was, you know, like everyone else, I, you know, I saw that and, and it was just amazing to watch him, you know, how he was, you know, beating these like larger, stronger opponents. And, and it wasn't just, you know, you know, like, you know, common grappling arts that we understood is like, you know, like wrestling and judo is kind of, you know, the big two in North America. But, you know, this intricate submission you know, style that he was em- employing. Uh, and then it was about um, it was about two years later after that is. Uh, so I, I actually uh, met Hoyce and, uh, and his brother Horian uh, at a seminar uh, in uh, Toronto, uh, Toronto, Canada, uh, here in Ontario. And um and I remember um, they were at an arena uh, just north of, this, uh, in, of the city of Toronto, and they were doing this Gracie Jiu-Jitsu seminar. So, you know, I, so I, I go in and, 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 and I recognized Hoist from the UFC and, uh, you know, so and, and he was, you know, teaching classes. And it was kind of my first real introduction to, you know, training with a real black belt in, in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, and, uh, and it was it was just quite an experience. It was just, you know, and, and some of his students were traveling with him uh, to helping to, to teach at the seminar. Uh, and it was just uh, just fascinating to actually feel it. Uh, and then so from there, I, uh, I you know, I, I tried to, you know, do as much as I possibly could. But, you know, we didn't have any black belts that were teaching in Canada at that time. There was not a single one. Uh, I believe at that time in 1995, the, the highest ranked uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu person in Canada was a blue belt. You know, the first belt color. You know, once you go past uh, a white belt beginner. Uh, so I was like everybody else at that time that was, um, you know, that was getting into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because of the UFC and, and other reasons. Uh, you know, I was traveling. I was going to seminars. I was traveling to the United States to, to, to learn, um, you know, from as many people as I possibly could. So, you know, I was at that time when, you, you know, if you saw a purple belt, you know, they were like, they were like gods, you know, like, you know, like no one saw a purple belt, and let alone a black belt in, in Canada. Uh, so I did that for about uh, two years uh, and at that time became a, a part of uh, Hicks and Gracie's uh, Association. Uh, um, Hoyce's uh, brother uh, and you know and, and again I was just traveling to go to seminars that Hickson would have and you know and trying to pick up as much as I possibly could uh, but it wasn't until uh, 1997 is uh, when I uh, met um, you know the the man who would become uh, my Brazil Jiu-Jitsu instructor uh, uh, Marcus Suarez so, uh, he's the chief instructor of the uh, Carlson Gracie team and and he had moved up from uh, Rio de Janeiro uh, in 1997 and I actually met Marcus uh, in uh, at a seminar that he was hosting or that he was conducting in uh, New Brunswick, which is a, another maritime province that sits next to Nova Scotia. Um, so, you know, a friend of mine, Sam, was 
was hosting Marcus and he said, you know, he called me, he said, ah, you know, you got to train with this guy. He's amazing. And, you know, he's from Carlson Gracie team and he's in he's all this experience. And he, he was a fifth degree master at that time. Uh, and, uh, so I, I went up to New Brunswick and, uh, did the seminar with him and, uh, then Marcus and I hit it off, uh, like really, really quickly. And, and that was in the summer. I, it was uh, late July, I believe. Uh, and then from there, you know, we, we talked and he was in the process of moving to uh, Vancouver, uh, on the West coast of Canada in British Columbia. Uh, and he was coming up to, um, to actually open a school. It'd be the first, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, black belt academy in Canada, uh, and a master instructor at that. Uh, so I, 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 we were talking, you know, a, a few times back and forth. And, uh, and when he came up, I, that, that September of, uh, 1997, uh, I, I, I took my first trip out to uh, Vancouver, uh, from Nova Scotia. So I crossed the entire country just to go to, uh, to train with him. Uh, and then I, uh, started training under Marcus and it was just an amazing experience. So I used, you know, all of that, uh, you know, training and knowledge that I was gaining from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu combined with, uh, what I already knew from karate and judo. Uh, and that started to form the basis of uh, my approach to uh, to combatives and, uh, and about knowing um, how to fight both on my feet and off my feet and to be comfortable as you transition through those different ranges of distance. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing because I think a lot of uh, a lot of us now that are in BJJ schools, and I've been in you know a couple of really really good ones, but as I mentioned before. Over and over again, we start on our knees. You know, you, you slap hands and then off you go. Um, I had Hoist on the show about a, just over a year ago, I think it was now, you know, and we talked about the stand up side and he talked about learning striking more so, so he could recognize it and then use his takedowns. And, you know, so it wasn't like he was learning to strike so he could strike a lot, but it was to, to understand the opponent as it were. So what did that early jujitsu look like compared to what you see in a lot of, a uh, lot of gyms now? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's a, that's a question I've asked a few times as well. Um, to be honest with you, I think, um, I mean, I mean, my opinion is just that, um, you know, the jujitsu today is, uh, is so much more technical. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to say better, but, you know, but it's definitely a a lot more technical. There's been so many innovations, uh, in jujitsu over the last 20 years. Like, like for example, you know, I, I'm a first generation black belt in Canada, you know, like, uh, you know, Marcus is, you know, often referred to as the father of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for Canada. And, uh, and, you know, and, and all of the folks that I started training with, um, you know, uh, you know, some of us stuck around and ended up becoming black belts. And, uh, but, you know, we were, you know, a first generation, like I said, there was no one higher than a blue belt. Um, you know, when, uh, when, when Marcus came to Canada, uh, that was teaching here anyways, you know, people were just coming in, you know, bringing black belts in for seminars and that, but, but no one teaching here. Uh, and the, you know, the jujitsu, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I know that the, the flavor of jujitsu will, you know, change from team to team. Like in, and a lot of times you can tell, you know, where a person trains, you know, and probably what team they're associated to by the style of jujitsu they're using, you know. So like, you know, I always kind of categorize it as like two basic styles. You know, there's that, you know, heavy crushing style, which is more like what I do. Uh, but then you've got that free flow open game, you know, very, um, you know, very much more transitional game uh, that, you know, that people will play. Uh, so like my, um, uh, my, my partner that I have with, uh, in team evolution, uh, uh, Dan Gilmet, uh, he, he's like that, like he, you know, you know, him and I are, you know, utterly different in our expression of jujitsu, you know, his is a much more flowing game and, 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 and not as, um, not as kind of like, you know, heavy pressure game like I have. Uh, so I'm more of a Carlson Gracie person. And, and so, you know, that will change, but 
you know, when you talk about the styles of jujitsu today, like, you know, and, and, and what a lot of the folks are doing today, it's just, to me, you know, it's, it's like night and day. It's just that are very more innovative and there's a lot of, a lot of great stuff. Like now, I mean, like today, like, you know, um, you know, leg locking, for example, you know, there was, there was some, you know, some good leg locking folks and, and things like that. And, you know, and, um, you know, and, and I'm okay at leg locking and, uh, but I wouldn't say that it's a big part of my game. Uh, I understand how they work and I've trained with lots of Sambo folks and, and lots of good jujitsu guys who are also good at leg locking. But, you know, if you look at folks like, you know, like, like Gordon Ryan and, and what John Danaher and, and those guys are doing, it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Like the, the level of technical expertise that is, that has been developed uh, and, uh, and a lot of folks like that. So I think that it's definitely more, more technical today and think more innovative. And I'd say in, I guess, I guess compared to what I learned uh, growing up. So maybe not better, but just different. Beautiful. Well, I know that you, so you had the background in karate, you had the background in judo, and then you had um, BJJ. How did you find yourself teaching defensive tactics to police officers and corrections and, and that kind of field of professions? Yeah. So, um, and that's kind of funny because that kind of developed over time as well. Like, so back in the, uh, in the mid 1990s, uh, like I said, you know, I was already doing, you know, uh, proficient in, in as a, like as a black belt level in karate and judo. And, and then I'd already been introduced uh, to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, at least at a, you know, a, a basic level uh, when I started to, uh, to teach kind of my first uh, combatives classes. And, and that was as a civilian. So that was, um, I didn't join the, uh, uh, the Canadian forces until uh, 2001. Uh, so up till then, uh, I had spent a few years from about 1996-97 period of time until I joined the military, uh, teaching, uh, you know, for um, uh, police sciences and, and corrections uh, in Nova Scotia at, at, a, at um, a couple of different uh, career academies uh, as, uh, as their preparation and, and certifications to go into those fields um, and a little bit of uh, border services as well. Uh, so I, I think that at that time, there was still kind of a heavy emphasis upon, uh, like, you know, for example, uh, pressure point control tactics and, and things like that, uh, basic weapon retention and weapon takeaways. Uh, and, and there was still, I think, a heavier emphasis upon um, uh, a lot of striking. Um, there, were, there was still not, uh, not a lot of um, uh, credence given to uh, taking a fight to the ground or the possibility that a fight could go to the ground. So, but I knew already then that uh, this is a very real possibility. Uh, so I started getting my feet wet uh, when it comes to uh, combatives training in, in that environment. So for about five, six years uh, prior to the military is when I first started um, getting involved with, um, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, combatives techniques and, and tactics, but on the, you know, policing and correction side of the house. And it wouldn't be until I joined the military is that when I would start to uh, just shift that flavor more to uh, uh, to soldiers, uh, uh, both on the conventional side and the uh, special operations side of the house. Right. Well, I know you entered in 2001. Did 9-11 factor into that at all or was that pure coincidence? Uh, it was pure coincidence. Um, I, I, I actually uh, I actually joined uh, the day, I believe it was the 7th of September, 2001, was when I actually joined. Uh, the military and inside at the recruiting center. Uh, and then of course, 9-11, just a few days later. So it was pure coincidence uh, that it happened. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I still obviously remember it vividly like most people do. Uh, and it, but it really did change everything uh, as far as, um, you know, 
the kind of the, the urgency that we, you know, everyone knew obviously that, you know, there, there was going to be a lot of fallout from it and, and uh, that things were going to happen. Uh, but yeah, no, it was just pure coincidence uh, that happened uh, right after I joined. And what was the reason that you finally pulled the trigger on entering the service? Well, I think, um, like I said, I, you know, I, during my uh, university days, um, as I said, you know, I, I, I thought about, you know, different things that I wanted to do. And, and as I already mentioned, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer and that for a while. Um, you know, for me, I think that there are very few things in life that are worth doing. And I think that serving your country is one of them. So I, I think that it was just um, it was just a calling. It was just something that I that I wanted to do. Uh, I, I couldn't think of any uh, nobler thing to do than to serve my country. And, and I think, it, you know, whether you're talking about the military or you're talking about, you know, police, other first responders, uh, you know, it, it's a calling. It, it's a it's an innate desire to, to serve your uh, your fellow citizens, to serve your community. Uh, and I couldn't think of any better way of doing it. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when you are, you know, protecting people in that way and, and you know, protecting your nation's sovereignty and, and you know, and, and, you know, acting in the national interest of your of your country. Uh, and uh, I, I just I couldn't I couldn't imagine uh, doing anything that at least to me anyways, it would be uh, more worthwhile than that. So I think, I think that's really kind of what uh, kind of pushed me over the. Uh, over that, you know, that decision space as far as uh, why I wanted to uh, join the military. So walk me through your journey, because I know you ended up in special operations. So what were those first few years like? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, oh, uh, the first couple of years, I guess I think it was like pretty much like everyone. You try to try to forget them. There are uh, <laughs> a lot of, you know, obviously basic training. And, uh, and, and we go to um, in, uh, in a place in Quebec uh, called Saint-Jean. And we go there and we do our, you know, basic recruit training and, and things like that. And where you start getting introduced into, uh, you know, the military way of life and what it means now to be in uniform and, and all of those kind of things. And you, you end up going out to the field and you, you start to learn what it's like to live outdoors and, you know, and, and, and be on ranges shooting and, you know, all that good stuff, right? That, you know, just get yelled at a lot and, and, uh, and you know, and try to learn how to follow orders and all that good stuff, right? Just like everybody has to do it. Um, and then after that, you know, um, you know, past that, you know, for that next couple of years, was really spent uh, uh, learning my, uh, my, my trade craft, you know, like uh, I'm a logistics officer. Uh, so I'm on the, on the support side of the house. And, um, and I spent a lot of time uh, just going on uh, just different uh, trade courses and, and learning how to be a logistics officer uh, within the forces. So that was like the first couple of years, right? So there's not a lot of, t- it wasn't like a lot of time to really do anything else uh, other than do that. It's, it's such a, a frantic pace. And, uh, and I know it's similar in the, in the, uh, in the U.S. as well. Uh, for uh, you know, for my colleagues there, as far as uh, you know, all of that kind of preparatory work for what you're going to be doing for your career. So, as far as special operations, was you still in the logistics capacity within that group as well? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't so. Like I said, I joined in um, uh, 2001. By the time uh, I got to 2003, is when I uh, started to uh, to work. Uh, you know, like in my trade, and uh, and I was posted. Um, my first posting was to uh, Garrison Petawawa, uh, which is um, a, a large army base uh, to the uh, northwest of Ottawa. Uh, so that was my my first posting, um, and um, to um, to uh, the two Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group. 
uh, to CMBG. Uh, and there, uh, that was uh, with uh, the conventional forces with the, uh, the service battalion. Um, but then in 2006 is when I made application to, uh, to go over to the, uh, the special forces uh, to serve there. Uh, and then went obviously through their screening process and, and then was picked up to, uh, to go over there. So yeah, 2006 is when I uh, uh, made it over to uh, special operations. Beautiful. Now, in that capacity, do you still have to go through the same training that the operations side do? No, no, no. So the, you know, the, the operators, the special operators, you know, they'll do, uh, they'll do a, like a, a selection process. Uh, and, you know, they're looking for, uh, you know, very specific qualities and attributes uh, to enable them to operate in that environment uh, as a special operator. So on the support side of the house, uh, you know, we do a screening. You know, so it's obviously not as rigorous and things like that uh, because, you know, we're, we're being brought there for uh, our specific trade. You know, so, you know, so as a logistics officer, uh, whether I'm on the conventional side or on the special operations side, uh, I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm still there as a logistics officer. I'm not uh, I'm not there to be um, a special operator. Uh, so the, the process is different, although, you know, the, the, the screening is rigorous. Uh, you know, there is psychological testing there. Uh, you know, there is the um, you know, the the. Uh, the um, you know selection process from like an interview perspective, uh, you know reviewing your file to make sure that you're you know that you can operate in that environment. Uh, so it, it's um, so it, you know it, it definitely is a is a thorough screening process, uh, but uh, but but definitely not the uh, the same as the uh, the operators. Right. Well, I know you got deployed to Afghanistan a couple of times. So um, what I always ask any of my guests who have actually been deployed to an actual you know combat zone is as a civilian myself, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, our nations get told a very polarizing story, either a very anti-war story, you know, they're all a bunch of baby killers, or a very, very f- extreme pro-war story, like, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, applauding the coffins covered in flags, you know, so that the middle ground, the actual human story of what the men and women whose boots are on the actual ground, I think is often lost in that, that kind of narrative. So... Mm. When you got to, you know, when you got to the, these countries, you know, I, I always try and kind of underline that there are there are bad people within these countries, and often they're terrorizing the other nice people within that country. So, were there any things that you saw when you got on the ground that made you realize that, regardless of politics, regardless of whatever else was going on, that there were some bad people in the in this country, Afghanistan specifically, where you were, that needed to be removed? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, um, I, I think um, whenever you go to uh, any of those kind of environments, uh, it's usually, you know, quite obvious, um, you know, that this, uh, it's a very troubled area um, and, you know, not not unique to any particular culture or anything like that. You know, when you go into war zones, you know, the the evidence is, is all around you. Uh, you know, I mean, you can see the, um, you know, the human suffering uh, everywhere you go. And, and not just for the folks who were there, you know, fighting, you know, whether it's, you know, um, you know, the, the militaries that have come in or the, the you know, the folks that are there who live there uh, that are, you know, fighting back, you know, against, um, you know, a, a threat, you know, you know, because you, we all suffer loss, you know, on, on both sides. And, uh, and I, I think that, it's difficult to um, to to not see it. Uh, you know, it, it's all around you. Whether it's you know you know folks that have been lost, uh, you know, or injured uh, on on both sides. You know, the the, the people that are there that you're you're fighting with, and and the people that you're there to help. Uh, so, you know, it's um, 
it's always very difficult to to describe what that actually feels like. And, you know, you know, and, and, and as you said, you know, experiences will vary, you know, like they'll, they'll change depending on what you're doing and, and what role you have there. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, it's different, you know, say like, you know, for myself as a, as a supporter, you know, you know, I'll have different experiences than, uh, you know, say the operators would have, uh, you know, because of operating in, in different tactical environments in, in different scenarios. Uh, so I, I think that, it, you know, it always does uh, affect everybody. Uh, and I think, you know, it affects everybody in different ways, I think. Uh, and it depends on how you conceptualize what you've seen there and, and the, um, you know, and the, and the tragedy, you know, the, the, the suffering. Because at the end of the day, that's really what it is. It's, it's you know, it is, it's human suffering. Uh, and, you know, and, and war is always uh, difficult to, uh, to, to try to conceptualize and try to understand what it all means. Um, and, but, you know, it, it's... It's one of those things that you just you you, you know have to come to in, in your own way, and 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 sometimes it's it's difficult. Like I've worked with lots of uh, lots of folks over the years, um, you know, that have had you know struggles with it and and things that you know they had to do or, or things that they were you know experienced while they were in these places. You know, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or, or wherever. So it's difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, well, I think it's very important that we, as the people who didn't go overseas, you know, understand what you you guys are doing, you know, men and women are doing, and what we're seeing, and not you know tarring everyone with the same brush, not saying oh we're you're over there you know against Afghanistan. No, you're not. You're over there against you know these terrorist groups that are in Afghanistan or or Iraq or Syria or whatever it is. So you know that very black and white storytelling is very detrimental, and I think I don't think it helps. That when our military men and women come home, that the people they're coming home to have no idea what they just went through. We should have an idea. You know, I think it's very important the same way as Sebastian Junger talks about, you know, the Native American tribes, you know, how storytelling was very, very important for them, you know, um, decompressing after the, the wars that they went through. So I, I, I thank you for your response because I, I try and do that on every single guest I have that's been deployed. Because I think it's very important for us that weren't to get a picture, a glimpse into the sacrifices that our men and women have made and, and the humanity that you see, you know, that amongst these, these horrible people are normal men and women and, and children trying to live their lives in the middle of a war zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, but, you know, I, I would also, I, I would also uh, assert that, um, I don't think it's a lot different than what you see with, uh, like with first responders and, uh, you know, it, you know, it's difficult. Like you see, you know, whether you're a firefighter or you're a police officer or you're, a, you know, a frontline medical worker, a doctor, a nurse, uh, it's just you you generally don't see people at their best. Like you have to go into situations that are just are inherently tragic. Um, you know, there, there's going to be some level of suffering in that. And, and at the end of the day, like, you know, like we're, we're all human, like and, and we feel for each other. And, and it's difficult to watch and see other people suffer. Uh, and so when you when you become subjected to that, it, it is so difficult uh, to deal with it later. Uh, like my brother and I, we had many conversations. His, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, he's a police officer in Alberta. Uh, but my brother also, um, you know, growing up and uh, in his younger days, he was also a, a volunteer firefighter. Uh, he was EMT. Uh, uh, so he, he's done a lot. He's pretty much done all of the, uh, the first responder type roles in, in one capacity or another. And I remember many times, you know, like, you know, say it was a vehicle accident and, uh, you know, my brother would, you know, come back and, 
and usually we would get together and we would just talk about it a little bit. Now, he wouldn't say a lot. Uh, you know, he, you know, he's very he's very quiet that way, and he, and he deals with these things in his own way. But but I could see it in his eyes. I, I, I could see that it was um, it was difficult. You know, especially if there was a loss of life, or you know, someone that was you know very seriously injured. Uh, and I, I could always I could see it in his eyes. Um, you know how much it was bothering him, and that he was in the process of trying to um, to reconcile it in his own mind. Uh, of how to move forward because at the end of the day you know you, you know say if, if you're in a war zone you know as a uh, as a soldier well you you still have to go up the next day you know if you're a firefighter well you still have to answer the next call if you're a police officer you know when the, when the 911 call comes in you still have to go and uh, but you but you've just dealt with you know this other thing that has just happened so I think that it's it's um you know and, and you know and, and I, I would think you know doctors and nurses would be probably the same uh, you know that you know people when you go to the hospital it's not generally because you feel okay you know they're 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 seeing human suffering and you know and and, uh, and we care about each other at the end of the day and and I don't think anyone wants to see anyone suffer so I, I think that's I think that's the most difficult part to explain to people or to try to you know have them empathize. As far as, you know, what it feels like to do those kind of things and to be subjected to that, you know, day after day. Uh, and, and it's uh, it's tiring. It, it wears you down mentally. Uh, and so I, I think that that's the, uh, the difficult part. But at the same time, with that being said, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, you know, it's kind of a, a catch 22 between having them understand what you do and then having them subjected to it as well. You know, because some things I just don't wish on anyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's just it. Just, just understanding, you know, the kind of the things, plural, that that you know, the military first responders, as you said, the medical profession deal with. I mean, one of one of my previous departments, a crew just responded to a horrendous wreck where two adults and three children were killed a few days ago. And even through social media, I could feel that it rocked that fire department just from the comments and the posts. So yeah, I mean, that's just one call. Like you said, we clean our gear, we go back to the station, then we go run another one. So there's definitely parallels. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, and I think that you know really kind of speaks to um, you know when when you start talking about uh, you know mindset development and you know like in the military we we refer to it as warrior mindset, but but you know I I don't think it necessarily has to be called warrior mindset, but you know that kind of mindset uh, development and um, you know and especially as it relates to mental resiliency, you know you know it's like the mind is to me the the mind is like a rubber band, you know it it, it has a certain level of elasticity. So if you stretch it beyond that, it breaks. And I, I think really the kind of the key to it is to try to get to a point where you can, you know, through, you know, proper training and, and, and mental conditioning and, and things like that is to try to, you know, to to move that threshold as much as possible. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, everyone has a limit. And, and even if you work on it and you train and you try to develop it and, and you try to, you know, somehow you know, uh, you know, move that threshold as far as what you can deal with for, you know, a, a chronic type stress environment that you see a lot of like military and first responders subjected to. Um, it, it, we still have a limit. Uh, and, and, and I don't think anyone wants to get there. You, you, you just got to be it's something you have to be very mindful of. And, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle. It, it's right there, you know, over time, uh, you know, everybody wears down, even even water will wear away the, 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 the hardest rock. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to get back to the combative stuff. Um, however, that seems like a good place to kind of segue to grit for the moment. So tell me about, you know, you really diving into that warrior mindset and, and, and the actual mental element of, uh, the combatives through grit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Grip is an interesting, uh, uh um, course. Uh, so, uh, so grit stands for uh, growth and resilience integrated training. Uh, so they use grit as the acronym for it. And it was actually, um, uh, a pilot course that, that was kicked off, uh, in, in Alberta at, uh, one Canadian mechanized brigade group at, at Garrison Edmonton, uh, in Alberta. Uh, and they kicked off a, um, uh, this, this, course this this training program uh which is over five days uh, and then during that five day period of time they have a whole bunch of uh, different facilitators that come in you know b- both military and civilian uh and, and they talk about all kinds of different things and they, they run courses uh on all kinds of different um aspects of, of this uh this program uh you know you know everything from you know uh you know team dynamics uh, to, you know, visualization, uh, you know, team performance, uh, you know, um, spiritual domains, uh, and, and including uh, a combatives portion, uh, which is where I was. Uh, so that's the piece that I came into uh, and was invited to participate in and, 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 and doing that piece of it. So basically what it was was, uh, um, like I said, again, it was in uh, November of 2019 when they ran the first uh, pilot course. Uh, and what I did was I uh, went out and um, uh, so I flew out to Edmonton and uh, and I taught, uh, you know, the, the hands and feet piece of it, if you will, like, you know, the actual combative techniques and what most people think of when you when you say the word combatives, right? You know, the actual fighting stuff. Um, and then in the afternoon, after we did kind of a morning of this training, uh, then I did a, a presentation on warrior mindset development and talking about, you know, how we develop warrior mindset, what it means, you know, to have, uh, you know, a warrior mindset and also, um, how that relates to uh, mental resiliency. So some of the things that we were just talking about, um, so it was very interesting, uh, to be a part of it. It's, it's quite an initiative. And then, um, uh, and then, and then we, they ran another, um, uh, course, uh, after that in, uh, in February of, uh, of 2020. Uh, and obviously, as we know that, you know, soon after that, then we uh, went into the pandemic and, and they took that. And so we haven't had any uh, courses uh, run since that time. But we did actually manage to have two of them conducted uh, in Edmonton uh, be- before we went into the pandemic and that. So so I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, like once we get out of the, um, the, the pandemic and that, you know, we'll probably get, you know, uh, that course and, and, and probably some others like it uh, uh, back online. Um, you know, and it was just a, it was, it was just a, it was a very, um, very interesting, um, uh, course to be involved in. And it was just taking kind of a, you know, a little bit of a different approach, uh, to, um, you know, you know, cause the target audience obviously is soldiers, um, you know, and, and we kind of think of, uh, you know, like the, you know, the normal way that we would, uh, you know, talk to soldiers about that kind of stuff and, and not necessarily, uh, you know, from that kind of more uh, academic perspective and, uh, and, and exposing them to other, um, you know, facilitators that were, you know, uh, from the civilian side. Uh, you know, they, a lot of uh, a lot of doctors and, uh, you know, from, and even uh, from the University of Alberta and, you know, places like that. Um, that, you know, would come in and, you know, share their experiences and, and, uh, and, and teach, you know, different ways of, of thinking of things and conceptualizing and that. So, yeah, it was very fascinating. I was very, very honored to be part of it. So what were some of the tools that people would walk away with after that training that maybe traditionally they haven't from prior ones? 
Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, I can only speak from my perspective and the piece that I was involved in. Um, and uh, so from, you know, from that kind of uh, combativist piece and, and, and warrior mindset, it was, I was, you know, showing, um, you know, showing the the, uh, the participants uh, just different ways to, uh, you know, conceptualize um, their ability to operate in a high threat, high risk environment. Uh, and that, you know, and what it means to actually inculcate a warrior culture. So, you know, it was just seeing themselves as uh, an integral part of the equation. And what a lot of people do is, I mean, because it's easy enough just to say that, well, you know, yeah, you have to be tough and you're, and you're going to learn techniques in that, uh, you know, to, to fight and protect yourself in a, in a high risk environment. But it, it's something different to then actually see yourself in, in that facet. Like, you know, like if I'm if the only way you get better at doing something is by actually doing it. So once, uh, you know, when you train, as you know, like when you're fighting in that, like, you know, the more often that you're subjected to, uh, you know, a, a violent environment, well, the more commonplace it becomes. You make extraordinary events more ordinary. So that was the kind of the, uh, the upshot of, of what I was showing them that, you know, in the morning we would do again, the, you know, the head hand combat type stuff and some, and some weapon retention drills and, and all those kind of things. But then in the afternoon when we, when we were talking about, you know, the, the more, um, you know, the, uh, the academic portion of it in, in my presentation, uh, was seeing that, you know, they have to first conceptualize, uh, what it means to be a warrior. So, you know, I, I take a very more, uh, traditional approach to, it. you know, like, you know, uh, you know, I would talk a lot about, you know, um, uh, warrior cultures like the samurai, um, you know, the Spartans and, 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 and different, um, you know, groups like that, that, you know, epitomize what we think of as a, as a warrior culture. Uh, and then to see that, you know, they play a role in that, you know, when they're in the profession of arms. So once they start, you know, sort of kind of recasting how you see yourself and realizing that to be in these types of high threat scenarios is is a real proposition. You know, life and death could be a real proposition. Uh, and knowing that it it's OK to be afraid. And, and that's the first thing, uh, you know, that I, I, that I told everybody is it's not about not being afraid. Everybody's afraid, you know, and if, if you're not afraid, then you probably don't really understand the gravity of the situation you're in. So there's nothing wrong with that. But what you have to do is you have to be able to manage that fear. So, you know, and, and I talked about like visualization, um, you know, tactical breathing, uh, you know, some different techniques like that, mindfulness, uh, transcendental meditation, just so, so different things like that, saying that, you know, it, it's, it's okay uh, to be afraid and understand that it's it's a normal part of it. So controlling that fear response uh, and, and trying to work through that uh, and knowing that it's going to happen and it's normal. So we did a lot of uh, a lot of different things like that. And, and then just uh, and, and some of it was, um, you know, kind of food for thought, you know, just things to, to think about and, and not and realize that, you know, if, if something like that were to happen or they were put in that environment, you know, a life and death situation, uh, is that these are things to be expected. Uh, and, and then they kind of wrapped it all up with, uh, you know, uh, talking about mental resiliency and realizing that what they have to do is you, you have to identify your limits. You know, you know, when you're in those types of high threat environments, that's not the time to find your limit. You have to know where they are. Uh, and, um, you know, and it helps, you know, to, to talk to people, to work through it train, you know, and, and I, and I really do believe that that is the, you know, that's the secret to everything, you know, is, is you have to train and you have to put yourself in those places that are as close to the real thing as possible, uh, 
so that you start to acclimatize yourself to it and identify, you know, what you can and cannot do. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you, you know, asked you that question. You responded that way because I think that's a very important thing for our professions to hear, police, fire, corrections, you know, associated professions. There is a tendency with some departments to to draw away from realistic training. And I think that you framed that perfectly. It's okay to be scared. Our training should scare us because the real world is going to scare us. A structure fire is, you know, is scary, especially if you get out of that kind of flow state that we tend to get into. I'm sure in the law enforcement side, a gunfight, you know, grappling is scary as well. And what I've seen in, you know, there are some departments doing it incredibly well, but there's a lot where there's a deficit and, and a tendency to do a training once, make it, you know, not even that realistic, check the box and then say, all right, we did this training for the year. And I find that such a disservice. I want the hard, you know, like the MMA fighters say, you know, the hardest fight you ever had should be sparring, not in the ring. And I think it's the same in our professions as well. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I, I was like, um, I've also uh, coached a lot of um, uh, MMA fighters, uh, both uh, amateur and professional, uh, mostly here in, uh, in uh, Ontario and Quebec. Um, it's mostly where my licensing uh, has been. Uh, and one of the things I've always told, um, you know, a lot of the um, uh, my students or my fighters when we're, we're training and doing a fight camp is that, you know, you know, you you have to experience these things during your training because in the fight it better not be the first time you're seeing it because you're not going to just know what to do you know like i, I like i'm a, i'm also a, a parachutist uh, so i so i jump out of airplanes and that and and i and i uh, so i i did that also here in the uh, in, in the military um and i remember um, you know, the, the, the first time jumping out of an airplane, you know, you know, you know, like everyone else, you know, I, you know, I did the military course and, you know, we had the two, two, uh, the two weeks of ground stage and, you know, where you learn how to do all your drills and, and things like that. And, and you do the mock tower, you know, to see if you're afraid of heights and all that kind of stuff. And, and then, then of course, in the third week, we did our J stage, our, our jump stage. And, uh, and, and I can tell you right now, uh, nothing prepared me for that. Like, uh, like I was never so scared in all my life. Uh, jumping out of an airplane for the very first time. I mean, it's not normal to jump out of a perfectly fine airplane that's not crashing. Uh, and just to will yourself out the door, to to allow yourself to manage that fear, compartmentalize it to the point where you can still act and, and, to, and know that you just have to trust the drills. And the only, and, and the one thing I will say though, is that the, you know, the drills that we did and the things that we learned on the ground were exactly the same as when we were in the air. It was no different. It, it felt exactly the same, uh, and it's because the, the 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 training drills were realistic. It got us as close as we possibly could without actually doing it. So I, I think that there's always going to be that little part, you know. Like I mean, at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, say if you're you know if you're fighting and and things like that, like say from a sport perspective, or you know, if you're sparring in, in a club or something. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, no one that fights, you know, will even for a moment suggest that it's the same as really fighting, you know, because there's there's going to be a fear response there because, you know, you know, there's there's no referee there, you're not fighting for points like, you know, there's not going to be a bell that's going to ring and then it'll stop. You know, usually you'll stop when one person is going to the hospital. So there is that fear because you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. But when your training is realistic it will allow you that, that, that 
5% that you need to be able to make you jump out, make you cross that threshold and go out the door and, and get under canopy, it, th- th- that's, that's what you need. The only thing that will allow you to do that and to trust the drills is to know that the drills have actually prepared you. I had a friend of mine who um, was a really good boxer. And, uh, and he was a boxer here in Canada for, for a number of years and fought professionally and, and, and things like that and, and great, great fighter. And I remember him telling me uh, years ago, you know, uh, this expression, he said that a kind coach is a cruel coach because they don't prepare you for reality. And, you know, so when you're in there and you start getting hit for the very first time, you'll know whether or not you've prepared or not and whether or not you have the mental wherewithal to you know, to, to compartmentalize that fear so that you can act. And, and, and I remember him saying that to me and it always stuck with me. And and I remember, you know, again, you know, first time jumping out of the airplane, I just said to myself, you know, just trust the drills, just do what you were taught and you'll be fine. And, uh, yeah. So, so I think it's, it's critically important. I think training is the key to it and it's gotta be realistic training. Absolutely. Well, it's funny, the skydiving story, I had a a similar thing with uh, a tandem jump. You know, I was obviously the uh, the person strapped to the professional, but I I will not lie. I've said this story a few times on here already. I literally, like metaphorically and literally shit myself before (laughs) I was supposed to go up (laughs) and was terrified, you know, and still went through it. And wasn't like I was, you know, scrambling to not go by the door. But the difference, like when I landed, I absolutely loved it and I was ready to sign up and learn how to do it myself. So the difference between the first jump and the second, second jump mindset wise, if I'd gone immediately back up again, would have been completely different. It wasn't complacency. It wasn't arrogance. It was that fear of the unknown had been removed. As you said, I'd been to that place. And I think that's, you know, that's what's so important is we don't need to make up like completely unrealistic training to terrify you know, the people, the students, but you have to create an environment that simulates what we're going to be doing, you know, especially some worst case scenarios so that God forbid it happens when you fall to your level of training, that level of training is actually pertinent to get you out, you know, of that situation and save your life and the people that you're trying to save. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you just, you just, um, just hit on something I think very important when you said about being reduced to your level of training. Uh, that's the, you know, from a combatist perspective, that's one of the things that, uh, I always use to evaluate a technique or a tactic is what happens when you pressure test it. It, it's great when it's under a very controlled, you know, specific, you know, set of guidelines or rules or, or scenario. That's great. But what happens when you really pressure test it? And, and I find that happens a lot, you know, especially in weapons, uh, uh, weapons training, uh, you know, whether it's weapon takeaways or, or, or weapon retention drills, you know, you know, these a lot of these, you know, like, um, you know, really fancy, you know, fine motor skill driven, you know, techniques, uh, they just don't work. They just absolutely fall apart. There is no scenario where these actually work when you're, you know, when you're pressure testing it, you know, and that's kind of what I, um, you know, it's, that's kind of this, you know, the same standard that I apply when I'm looking at, you know, like, you know, what is a useful martial art to train, right? And, you know, and and without getting into stylistic arguments and things like that. And, and I always tell people that, you know, I'm a martial artist first and a stylist second. Uh, I'm not interested in, in, you know, arguing that, you know, this style is better than that style. Every style has strengths, every style has weaknesses, you know, what makes them good or what makes them relevant is if you're applying them in the right tactical environment. You know, does it actually make sense? I had mentioned earlier about, you know, if, if you're fighting, 
you know, multiple opponents, you probably don't want to be on the ground. You, you, you might want to have some hands and feet skills and know how to employ and deploy uh, a weapon system to create a tactical uh, overmatch. So, you know, to me, you know, like without getting into that kind of stuff, because I, I don't I, I just don't really think it serves any purpose. I don't think it has any value to get into stylistic arguments. But what I do believe, though, is that when you're talking about, um, you know, uh, you know, martial arts, for example, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what's effective. To me, uh, I, you know, I believe in training in combat proven martial arts. In other words, you know, the, the martial arts that have live sparring. So, you know, like, you know, I would, you know, count, you know, boxing and Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Sambo, Judo, you know, all of these kind of styles are combat proven because they have live sparring. It's not just point sparring. Uh, you can see what happens when you have an actual resisting opponent who is able to fight back. So, you know, so if a, if a, if a combative system or martial art does not incorporate live sparring into the training, then, uh, you know, I, I question its utility. Uh, like I, I, I would need to see it pressure tested. And if it succeeds when it's pressure tested, uh, then I think it, you know, it's, it's something that's worth looking at. It, it's probably something you might want to spend your time learning. Absolutely. Well, I had a uh, Buzz Rutan on the show and he was talking about open handed strikes, palm strikes and you know, in the Valley Tudor he used to fight. Um, you know, that was his kind of specialty with that and his kicks. Um, what is your philosophy on open handed strikes when it comes to, you know, a, a street fight versus uh, a closed fist? Hmm. Um, I, again, I think that's a, it's an interesting one because uh, again, there's, um, you know, pros and cons to both. Uh, I, I think that if you're, we're always careful, like, you know, say from a, from a military perspective, right? Because obviously we don't want to, to break a hand because you can't fire a weapon. And, and, and it's very how uh, difficult to hold a, you know, a blunt or edged weapon if you break your hand. Uh, and, it, you know, and it can be obviously a, a fight ender. And, uh, and if you're in a real fight, it's not something that you want to be uh, experimenting with. So I, I think that, um, I think it's just as long as the technique is applied uh, correctly, like, you know, if you're going to be striking with a closed fist, uh, you have to be very careful about striking hard objects. And that could be even the top of the head. You know, if, you're, if your hand's loose and, you're, and it's not tight, um, you know, I'm more apt to probably side on the, uh, you know, go with the side of, uh, you know, striking with, a, with an open hand, you know, probably like, you know, the, the, the heel of the hand, uh, like the palm. Because uh, I, I just think that sometimes it's very high risk uh, when you start uh, punching with a closed fist, uh, especially if it's not wrapped uh, and you haven't cast at the hand or anything like that or have any kind of pr- protective gear over it. Uh, but again, you know, it's one of those things that's, you know, it's, it's hard to say that in every scenario that would be appropriate. Uh, but I, I'm more apt to, um, uh, you know, strike with a more of an open hand. Right. Well, I want to get to, you know, the defensive tactics in law enforcement for in a second, but just one more thing, especially more in the military sense. Um, you know, a, a weapon that is not talked about as much, but again, was terrifying when I did sheepdog response was edge weapons, knives. Um, you know, you see some horrific videos out there from some of the, you know, the, the, the men and women that put that stuff out. Um, with that, is there a specific art or kind of philosophy when it comes to edge weapons? I know obviously that's more of a military specific weapon as well, but for a civilian, you know, that was wanting to learn edge weapons, is, is there an art that you prefer? Is, is it encompassed in some of the ones we've discussed already? 
Yeah, I think um, for me, I think most a lot of the uh, the Indonesian martial arts, like you know penjak salat and, and and arts like that, I think are probably some of the the finest knife fighting arts in the world. Uh, and you know they really, uh, I think they've really really die, dove into the uh, you know the intricacies of, of knife fighting, both offensively and defensively. Uh, so I, I think that. You know, mo- I think that's the uh, the area that most of the uh, the effective most effective knife fighting has come from. Um, now, there's different. Um, you know, like you know, I don't I don't call myself a knife fighting expert or anything like that. Uh, but I've you know done lots of knife fighting from a, from a combative's perspective, and and I find again the you know the the knife fighting tactics that are employed, I, I think have to be uh, they have to be simple. Uh, and they have to be uh, easily employed. So, you know, depending on the style of knife fighting that you're looking at or, you know, the particular martial art that you study, you know, you know, these, you know, they can have up to like, you know, a dozen different types of, uh, you know, uh, specific cuts, you know, strikes to use. But what I find is that, you know, like when you look at it, usually, you know, like the first, you know, five or six uh, uh, basic cuts in knife fighting you know, when you're talking about striking on uh, diagonals and, and horizontal and, 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 and stabbing motions and things like that, uh, those are usually the only ones I've, I've ever actually seen used in a real fight. It, it, you don't need to get, you know, complicated with the, uh, with the strike patterns. Uh, you know, the first, the first few that you learn, uh, you know, when it is most of the knife fighting styles use a numbering system. So the, the first, you know, usually five to six are the only ones that are actually ever used. So, uh, you know, and, and I think the other reality of knife fighting is the fact that um, the one thing that that you can be certain of is that you're going to be cut in a knife fight. You're not getting out of that fight without being cut. Uh, and um, in whatever particular style that you're employing, uh, if, if you're not protecting, you know, the, that, you know, the vital spaces uh, and, you're, and you're, you know, doing high risk techniques that require a lot of fine motor skills, then you're uh, dramatically increasing your chances of failure. Fascinating. Well, thank you for that, because again, that's something completely outside of my well, my realm. I'm actually about to start. We have a, a Carly instructor here in town, so I'm going to start with him. But uh, I mean, it's terrifying. You know, you see some of these things, and and one minute someone's got nothing in their hand, the next minute the person opposite them is bleeding out. So. I mean, it's something I think that a lot of us need to at least expose ourselves to, because as we said before, if you've never even seen a knife, held a knife, then you're going to fall to your level of training, which is zero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and it's not even, um, you know, from a like from a, a situation where you're, you know, fighting an edged weapon, you know, whether or not it's a tool or if it's an improvised weapon or whatever it happens to be, uh, even without being cut. You know, when you see it, you know, the psychological effect that has on you uh, to just to see a weapon like that uh, being employed and especially, you know, somebody that has the intent to do you harm, uh, you know, and and you see it in their eyes and, you know, they're not kidding. You know, this is going to be, you know, potentially a life threatening situation. Um, You know, that that fear response is uh, is paralyzing. Uh, and it's not the same as, you know, fighting empty hand. So I think that the, um, you know, a lot of people kind of, you know, brush past that. And when you look at, you know, whether it's an edged weapon or a blunt weapon, like a stick or something like that, you know, those are readily available. You know, it's not, you know, they're, they're easier to get a hold of than a gun. So, you know, I think that, you know, do you need to expose yourself to that? If you're, if you're, if you're going to be a person who claims that they are training to be ready for a real fight, 
then you have to do training that involves edged and blunt weapons. They are readily available, and the the, the psychological impact that that has on a person, uh, you know, could make the difference. You know, whether or not you're going to be able to do what is required uh, to to save yourself, or you know, or maybe someone that you're with, uh, or if you're going to be a casualty. Absolutely. Well, you ended up teaching combatives all the way through your military career as well, including in the special operations community. So through that lens, especially of you know here in, in the U.S., um, where are some of the areas that some of these departments we we see could improve on the martial arts side or defensive tactics side, and also on the strength and conditioning side? So, um, so I'm not sure if I understand your question. <laughs> improve. Okay, so th- some of the videos that I have seen, you know, it's clear, even being a you know a, a intermediate martial artist at best, that there is little to no hands-on training whatsoever in some of these videos. They ended up, you know, resorting to their their firearm. Um, also, it's very evident that there are many of our men and women, not all, but, you know, quite a large amount, especially later in their career, find themselves deconditioned, which, again, I think it inhibits, you know, foot pursuits, it inhibits hands-on. So with your lens training high-level operators in the Canadian military, what are some of the the ways that you think some of those departments, those deconditioned men and women or the, or the, the, the leadership in those departments can raise that level of training and raise that level of, of fitness and, and overall wellness and, and what effect would that have on their success in their job? Well, I think uh, simply put is that uh, you, you have to do it all the time. You have to train all the time. And you have to be very judicious in what you're training and where you're prioritizing and what you are spending your effort on. So, you know, I, I think I mentioned one time, um, you know, I think we were talking, maybe it was in emails, but the uh, about, you know, if you're going to be good at something, you have to do it all the time. The only way I'm going to be good at fighting is by fighting. Um, you know, and that's why, like, for example, you know, within the, uh, within the forces here, uh, you know, I mentioned that I went down, you know, I've, I've kind of I've taken the approach of, uh, say, you know, fighting for lack of a better term in two different ways. Um, one, from a pure military perspective, you know, I refer to it as combatants, right? So to me, that's a, a military skill set. You know, I believe that there's only three legitimate military skill sets. There's field craft, tactical shooting, and hand-to-hand combat. And the reason why I say that is those three things save my life in combat. Everything else I do is my trade. And they're not necessarily in and of themselves military. But anything that will save your life in combat or increase your chances of survivability is a military skill set. So the only way that I get good at doing that or increasing my ability to use combatives to increase my survivability is I have to do it all the time. And that's regular training. And part and parcel with that is going to be physical conditioning. You know, we always say, you know, healthy mind, healthy body. You know, like if I'm if I'm the, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. Well, of course, you know, like, you know, you know, you know, you know, that the heavyweight champion of boxing is he's going to be in the ring. They're going to be sparring. They're going to be doing pad work. They're going to be doing heavy bag work. They're going to be doing all that stuff. And, and we understand that. Like, you know, everyone that has seen a fighter knows that. Right. But at the end of the day, they're still out doing their 5 a.m. road work. They're still running. They're still doing conditioning. They're still doing, you know, very, very specific sport conditioning 
and, and physical conditioning in general, because, you know, you, you have to be physically healthy. You have to be physically strong. You have to be able to push yourself in that way. You marry the two up. It's not one or the other. So, you know, the best fighter in the world doesn't just punch people in the ring or, you know, armbar people or whatever. They also do physical conditioning at the same time. And a lot of it's sports specific so that they're improving very specific physical skill sets. So I think that it's important that we understand that, you know, combatives is one piece of it. But as I mentioned earlier, the um, what I also see is I see, at least in the military here, what I've been pushing is the fact that, you know, um, the, you know, the martial arts recreational side of it, because I mentioned that, you know, a punch in the face is a punch in the face. So the more you fight, the better you get at doing it. So whether or not it's in a tactical scenario, which I would argue would be combatives or in a recreational sense, you know, just, you know, say grappling, if we use jujitsu as an example. So, you know, for example, you know, I, I, you know, I teach combatives in the forces and I've been a combatives instructor for a very long time, but I also have black belts in several martial arts and I train every day. I do physical conditioning, like, you know, what you'd call just your general physical conditioning. I do that every day, but every morning I fight, I, I'm with my training partners and we fight and we do jujitsu or we'll be striking whatever happens. And that's not a combative scenario. Then I'll do combatives, but all of those skills, all of that physical conditioning I do on the sports side of the house is something that I translate to the combatives because it's a general skill set. So I think that the only way that people get better at doing it is by prioritizing it and seeing it as something that we need to do. I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, like jumping out of a plane. If I say that you're going to jump out of a plane, but you've never actually jumped out of a plane before, you're not going to just know what to do. Like, well, I don't know why anyone would think that in a, an environment like that, in a scenario like that, that when faced with that problem where you have to go kinetic, where you have to become violent, or you're in a violent environment that could become violent, why would anyone think that they're just going to know what to do? I, I've never understood that that thought process, and uh, you know, and, and that wraps itself into the idea that you know it's about the you know the mental aspect of it. Well, when I'm doing realistic training, when I do training all of the time, you know, things that will actually save my life in combat then I condition my mind to it. I, that's when I start talking about that threshold. You know, I, I change the threshold and, and I start to become, you know, a mentally aware of it. I start to synthesize both the mental and the physical together. So I think everything that you do has to lead to that end state. Anything that doesn't lead to that end state, I don't believe you should be spending time on it. Beautiful. I mean, I agree 100%. And I think, you know, one thing that I try and be very fair on here is this to two sides to this coin you have the ownership of the individual every firefighter every you know corrections officer police officer should be training on their own they should be watching what they eat they should be diligent with their sleep but then we also have the work environment the leadership from the, you know the organizations that we work in and they should be you know creating time for these men and women to work out on the clock to put them through you know combatives or jujitsu training um you know and and in my opinion and this is this is a very hard sell on the fire service but we should be held to annual fitness standards too because 
you are, you know, the special operations community is, yet police and fire, whether it's the administration, whether it's the union, so many departments, they don't have that annual fitness standard. So we're allowed to drop and drop and drop. And, you know, the adage is the fittest we were was when the, in the academy. Well, shame on you. If, you know, three, six months into your training as whatever profession you're in, that was the fittest. That's, that's embarrassing. You should be fitter 10 years in. And the environment that we work under absolutely sets a lot of us up for failure. Sleep deprivation, some of these things with shift work is, is horrendous for the human body. But we need to have both those conversations. We need to have the ownership conversation and the leadership conversation. And if we're not creating an environment for our men and women to thrive and get better, which is the polar opposite of defund the police, then how do we expect, uh, you know, our officers or firefighters to perform on that level, as you said, when they're under duress in real life? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I know that's something that we've, uh, we've pushed very hard here uh, in the Canadian forces. And, and there's been a lot of support for it. There's been a lot of uh, uh, great support from the leadership uh, with that very thing, you know, like, you know, providing, you know, people the opportunity to go to do, you know, specifically, you know, when we talk about combatives and things like that. What I have, at least my personal experiences have been uh, very, very positive. And, and I've seen it right across the entire forces, this, you know, this reinvigoration of, you know, combat sports and combatives training and and the you know the willingness to you know provide those environments you know that people can can go do it do the training and they're encouraged to do the training so so from that perspective um you know i, I think it's been very positive over the last few years there's there's been a few of us that have you know kind of taken the uh you know the lead on it obviously because we're you know we're very you know emotionally invested in it you know and, and things like that but um you know what i have found uh, generally speaking and, and when i talk to my colleagues across the force you know like whether you're on the east coast west coast or in the central uh part of the country um, there's been a lot of great support uh, for that and, and seeing that, you know, that it is important and it is something that, you know, that people want to do uh, and, and they see that it is necessary. You know, they, they do see that, you know, that my body connection, like I said before, um, you know, like, you know, when in, in uh, West, when they, they uh, started, you know, the, the inaugural uh, GRIT program, you know, you know, I was asked to, uh, specifically to come out to do a combative portion. So, you know, there is, you know, so that's just one example of showing that, you know, that, you know, that people recognize that it is very important uh, and that it's a necessary skill set uh, and that there is a psychological component to that. So, you know, and then, but I also think that not only is it a, you know, a, a leadership responsibility, uh, I, I think there, there is a personal responsibility there. You know, like, you know, for example, you know, nobody tells me that I have to train every day like in, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I do. You know, I, I spend all of my time, you know, either doing physical conditioning or, uh, you know, doing jiu-jitsu or whatever it happens to be. And I do that, you know, you know quote unquote, on my own time. It's because I know that it's, you know, it is a skill development for me and it has a real world application. And, you know, and if I'm in a combative environment, uh, then I will use those skill sets. So so there is that, you know, not only, you know, you know, the leader, a leadership responsibility, but, you know, there's a personal responsibility there, you know, like, you know, you know, get up at 430 in the morning, you know, go for the run, you know, and do the things you need to do. Not because, you know, someone's making you do it just because, you know, it makes you better and it makes you stronger. So, uh, so I, I think that, you know, it, I think it's both pieces, I think. Absolutely. I agree. And that's the problem. I think if you just pick a side and then the solution doesn't, you know, materialize, you have to have the, both those conversations at the same time. So I want to transition to, to one little area and then talk about soldier on, then we'll go to some closing questions. But, um, one thing that I found interesting just watching, you know, the, the, 
the metamorphosis of the arts that I've studied um, is back in the day, like one example I did, I fought with shootbox. Um, not fought with, I trained with shootbox. I never fought with them. Um, and the sparring was like fight club. I mean, you got, you know, just the absolute <laughs> hell kicked out of you. I'd have dislocated jaws and broken noses and yeah. perforated eardrums. And it seemed very counterproductive to me for weeks and weeks after. Um, and a lot of high level coaches now, it seems like they're starting to go on the less is more. Still training, still working hard, strength and conditioning, a lot of drills, a lot of pad work. But as far as head trauma specifically, it seems like they're understanding that that's not the best thing to knock seven bells of shit out of each other every single time you train. So what has been your observation of that philosophy? Oh, no, you're right. You know, and this is, um, uh, you know, I, I could not agree more. And, and it's, you know, it's a discussion that I've had, uh, especially on the sports side, uh, you know, um, within the uh, within the forces. And then when we talk about, you know, the reinvigoration of like, you know, combat sports and things like that in, in the uh, in the forces um, in that kind of training. So because, yes, um, you know, it, you know, it's, it's important to train and, and things like that. And, but I think what this really speaks to is it has to make sense as well. Like you can't, you know, just beat each other up, you know, that serves no purpose. Uh, you know, and I think that, um, you know, we try to work very closely with, you know, like the health professionals and, uh, and, and you know, the sports experts and, and things like that, as far as like, you know, how to train safely. I, I remember, you know, when I, um, you know, when I started, you know, I, again, I always say, you know, I come from that old school and, uh, and that's why, when you see the evolution of sports in general and combat sports specifically, you know, they're so much smarter than I was when I started, like, you know, like, you know, I didn't understand the, you know, not fully, you know, the importance of nutrition and rest and, and sports specific technical training and, and, you know, psychological preparation and you know, visualization, all those things, which now are very commonplace among, you know, high level elite athletes. And, and I wish that, you know, when I was a younger fighter, and competing and things like that, that, that I had a, you know, a better appreciation for that and understood that, you know, that more is not better. And, that, and just because, you know, you can, you know, take a punch, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't take a punch there, you know? So I, I just wish that, you know, that we, you know, that I knew then what I know now. And, and that I think speaks to what I was uh, talking about earlier about, you know, how, you know, the, you know, the technical level of jujitsu for, as an example, has, you know, has dramatically increased from the time when I started doing it, but also, the, the level of knowledge and, you know, our access to professionals, you know, that can guide us on, you know, sports specific training, you know, you know, can you see all the, all those things, right? Like are just so much better now and are so much more well understood. So I, I think it's, uh, it's critically important that training to be good. You know, we've talked about realistic training, uh, but I think it's, uh, what's really important is that, uh, it has to be uh, safe training as well. And safe doesn't mean ineffective. And I, I think that sometimes, People equate those two things to say that, well, you know, if it's safe, then, you know, it's, it's not, you know, effective training. It's not like real training. Well, you know, I, I disagree. I, I think, you know, you, you have to train smart uh, and, you know, and, and speak to people, you know, you know coaches and experts uh, that, you know, that truly know what they're talking about and can maximize performance, but in a safe way. Absolutely. Well, before we go to sol Soldier On, one thing I forgot to mention, you um, kind of started the genesis of a combatives competition. And when I listened to your interview you did, um, you know, with a, with a fellow member of the military, uh, what really fascinated me was not only was this, you know, a, a tournament people could focus on, a tournament they could train for, but also that it circumnavigated 
ranks. So you had the highest ranks fighting the lowest ranks. So tell me about the the, the genesis of that because I think it's a very interesting, um, you know, philosophy or idea, but also. Um, you know, I'm sure that must have fostered camaraderie within the services as well, seeing that, that basically it was a level playing field when they were you know, in a ring or on the mat or whatever the arena was. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny about that. So what you're, what you're referring to there is the, uh, uh, the, uh, the military combatives uh, grappling concentration, uh, or what we refer to as the MCGC for short. Uh, and that actually kicked off in uh, 2013. Uh, was the you know the inaugural event, if you will, um, uh, that you know kind of started it all in, at Garrison Petawawa here in Ontario, um, and that was just interesting because prior to that, what it, how it all started was I was actually driving and uh, and I was trying to think of a way to you know all of the stuff that we've been talking about, like you know like the inculcation of a warrior culture and, and and warrior mindset development and mental resiliency and all those things, and and obviously you know like you know I see you know one of the key ways of achieving that is through combatives training. Uh, and, you know, it's obviously, you know, job specific, you know, hand-to-hand combat, you know, as, as a soldier uh, and then uh, and obviously all of the other, you know, intangible benefits that it gives you, you know, whether it's, you know, phys- uh, you know uh, physical or, or psychological. So I was trying to think of, like, you know, how do I do this? You know, like, how do I, you know, start to try to, um, you know, you know, s- spread this, you know, if you will, you know, across the force, you know, and, and introduce you know, this, you know, the value of this uh, type of training and, and, you know, in competition, you know, the, you know, the live sparring piece of it, you know, because you know, as well as I know that, you know, like, you know, when, when you do a, a, you know, a combat proven martial art, like, you know, like say jujitsu or Muay Thai or boxing or wrestling or judo, whatever it happens to be, you know, as well as I know that when we actually fight for real, we do the same techniques. Like my, my, when I do a jujitsu technique, or 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 a boxing technique. I don't change it when I'm in a real fight. I'm going to do it exactly the way I've trained it because we do live sparring. So I was trying to think, okay, how, how do we do this? And then it just dawned on me. Well, a competition. So what we do is I said, well, put together a competition and then invite people to, from across the force, whether they're army, navy, air force, special operations. You know, uh, all ranks, all trades, operator, supporter, doesn't matter bring everybody together in one place, as you said, on a level playing field where, you know, your trade, your rank, all of those things don't mean anything because you know that at the end of the day in the, and kind of the philosophy behind that was that at the end of the day, when it's all going wrong, all we're going to have is each other. And it's not going to matter what your day job is. It's not going to matter your rank or your trade. None of that's going to matter. All we're going to have is each other. So I thought that this would be a way to start to try to, you know, to foster that spirit, you know, that that warrior spirit and teamwork. You know, we're all together in the team. You know, like, you know, I don't I don't concern myself too much with, um, you know, those, you know, the other you know things that are involved with, you know, like rank and position and things like that, which absolutely is, you know, is absolutely required, you know, you know, discipline, all those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it definitely has its place and it's required. But. You know, at the essence of it, we are just one team. We're all in this together. We're all trying to work towards the same objective. And uh, and I thought there's no better way to d- demonstrate that than in hand-to-hand combat, you know, where it's just you. You, you know, you, you, it, it is up to you whether you win or lose. How much desire do you have? How much time have you put into the training? How much preparation did you do? And then it's it's for you to win or lose it. 
So uh, that was what that was the genesis of it. So then I, uh, I talked to a few other like-minded folks across the force, and we started to kind of spread the word, and, and we got it out there. And then uh, you know, and in 2013, you know, we had a pretty a, a pretty small kickoff, and um, and you know, we had a few folks, and it was mostly just uh, participants from uh, soldiers that were at uh, units that were based out of Petawawa uh, that competed. And then over the next uh, two to three years, uh, it grew. Uh, and then we started to have, uh, you know, um, you know, soldiers, competitors coming in uh, from other bases, uh, you know, mostly through Ontario and Quebec. And then it spread from coast to coast. And then we started having, uh, you know, fighters coming in you know, from the force uh, from the east coast to the west coast of Canada, right across the entire nation. Uh, coming into uh, to Petawawa uh, for this for this event, and, and essentially what we did was we we made it an annual event, and uh, usually around the June July timeframe, uh, and then we would have it every year. So we have uh, combatives teams that were being assembled at all of the different bases, and and again, you know, the chain of command and, and, and the, the unit uh, commanding officers and, and, the, uh, and the and the commanders were all you know very supportive, uh, you know, fully supported it, and like funding their teams and and putting them together, giving them time to train. Uh, you know, for uh, for PT and all that stuff. So it was, it was phenomenal. It was just an amazing, amazing experience and, and a lot of help, you know, right from, you know, the folks that are coming out to actually fight uh, to the uh, to the chains of command that are supporting their uh, their members coming out. So it was great. It was a great, great experience. Beautiful. Well, I mentioned, I heard you mention talking about obviously male and female. Did you separate the divisions though, women on women and men on men or being the military, were they actually fighting um, each other? No, for well, for now, what we've had is we've had them separated into, into divisions. So there would be uh, the male divisions and uh, female divisions. So we'll, um, the, you know, it, it morphs over time uh, as far as how it, how uh, how we actually do it. However, that being said, uh, we have had male and female fighting each other at the competition uh, because based on weight divisions. So we, uh, it, you know, if if we have you know not enough people in one weight division. Uh, then it doesn't matter male or female, then we can mix them. And, and we give them the opportunity to do that. And we've actually had that, we've had that actually happen where they decide, yeah, we'll fight each other. So, you know, it made no difference whatsoever. Yeah, interesting. So I think, you know, when, when it comes to grappling specifically, it is, again, it's more of a level playing field. I mean, we've all seen videos. I have been myself the recipient of multiple tap outs, <laughs> you know, from, <laughs> from my female co- counterparts. So yeah, that seems I. like an area where, you know, the, the kind of what they call it, the intramural, whatever the term is, co-ed, um, combatives actually would be a lot safer versus the stand up. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually at the MCGC, we have actually had that. We've had uh, male female divisions combined. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it was uh, it was a great experience and uh, and really no difference, no difference whatsoever because you know, technique is technique, preparation is preparation. You know, it's not a not a gender thing. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last area I want to touch on before we go to some closing questions is soldier on. So tell me about taking care of your men and women that have been uh, either mentally or physically affected by their service. Yeah. So so that was another thing that kind of um, just became organic over time. Uh, so what we did was so as the MCGC uh, started to really um, uh, gain in popularity and kind of notoriety uh, across the force, across the different bases. Uh, and, you know, and, and people started hearing about this thing happening uh, in Petawawa. Uh, it, it seemed to be um, a natural evolution. Uh, to uh, to start partnering with uh, Soldier On. So in around the uh, 2016 timeframe, so you know at that time this MCGC was about three years old. Uh, we I approached Soldier On about uh, not only using the uh, you know this event 
as a uh, you know an opportunity for uh, you know uh, you know soldiers to come together and sailors uh, air crew special operators to come together to actually you know train and compete like this in a you know kind of a, a common warrior type event uh, I you know I thought well you know why don't we take this also as an opportunity uh, to help raise money for soldier on uh, you know, and, and it's just it's a, it's a wonderful organization, you know, that, that helps all of our soldiers and that, uh, you know, across the forces to, um, you know, to to help them work through their challenges and things like that. And, you know, and I've always believed that, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's what you do more uh, when people need you the most uh, than what you do when they don't. Uh, so, you know, you know. You know, we have you know situations where you know you know people you know either made the ultimate sacrifice or you know or they've you know greatly sacrificed you know on behalf of the force and on behalf of their their country. And I thought, well, you know, like you know, let's try to you know combine this. You know, it just makes sense. You know, like you know, it's 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 warriors helping their fellow warriors. And and so it became something that was very very important to me. So so I researched the soldier on about you know becoming an official fundraising event for them. And, uh, and yeah, and, and, you know, they love the idea. And, uh, and then from, you know, 2016, 2017 timeframe, uh, we, you know, we became an, uh, an official event for them. So what we would do is uh, a couple of different things is that uh, one, um, you know, we had this, you know, kind of small entrance fee, if you will, uh, for, um, uh, the, you know, the fighters to fight. So what we do is we just take kind of take that, that, you know, as a donation to soldier on. So all of the soldiers who are fighting would be donating, you know, the so-called entrance fee, if you will, uh, as a donation to soldier on. Uh, and then we also uh, collect uh, money at the event uh, and people could donate, uh, you know, at, you know, spectators, uh, you know, other soldiers watching. And, you know, and we would collect all of that money up and then we would uh, and then we would give that to soldier on. Uh, so that's been um, an, uh, an absolutely amazing experience. And, you know, and again, I talked earlier about, um, you know, the support that we've received from the chain of command. You know, for example, you know, you can go online and you can actually uh, watch our, you know, the, the videos uh, from the from the MCGC uh, that um, that DAPA, our director of Army Public Affairs, uh, would stream live uh, via the uh, the uh, the official Army Facebook page. So, you know, so we'd have, you know, uh, folks like watching. Uh, the event live uh, around the world, uh, and, and it was um, you know very very widely um, um, you know uh, well received, uh, and you know people getting to watch you know um, you know the folks uh, you know fighting uh, you know at the actual event, and and it also gave you know the opportunity for uh, you know Canadians writ large to uh, to actually see you know to see their see their soldiers in action, uh, you know uh, in, engaged in hand to hand combat and, and training, and see the camaraderie and. And all of the you know the, the positive benefits uh, from it, and so you know it's just like I said, it was a you know a collective effort, you know like you know you know I, I you know I I play you know a, a role in it, and uh, and uh, but there's been so many uh, you know people you know right from every level of the force that has been supportive, like you know like you know the, the base commander in Petawawa, you know they're always you know very supportive, you know uh, giving us facilities and, and and let us hold the events and that. So you know, I really can't express enough, like you know how grateful I am for for all of the folks that have been uh, helping to uh, you know just spread the word of it and directly support it as well. So yeah, it's just a great event, and I couldn't think in my mind, I, I really couldn't think of anything you know, more else that we could do, uh, to then to have this event for the soldiers themselves and, you know, the, and the sailors, the air crew, the special operators coming in to actually, you know, lay it on the line and fight and, and, you know, and, and show their skill sets, uh, then to, uh, also pair it with soldier on. 
So I thought it was a, uh, to me, it was a great idea. And I, and I thought it would be something that would be, uh, that just made sense. Absolutely. It seems like a great way to connect the uh, active soldiers with the ones that transitioned out as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, um, you know, to me, it's always been, it's always family, right? Like, you know, we're, we're a family, like, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, like we're in it together. Uh, and you know, to me, it doesn't matter like, you know, what you do or, you know, what your like, what your specific job is, or if you're an operator or a supporter, you know, currently serving or, you know, a, a veteran or whatever it happens to be, you know, like it's a, it is a family and, and, and I'm extremely proud uh, to be part of this family. And, uh, and there's just, there's just no more nobler cause I could think of and to serve, um, you know, with the, uh, the wonderful men and women that we do. And, uh, there's just, it's, it's all inspiring, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know, I, I just I never forget that, you know, that, you know, that I stand in the shadow of greatness. And, you know, and there's folks that have, you know, really, you know, they've really, you know, done the extra. Right. Like then they uh, and it's just it's just, um, you know, amazing to, to actually see it. So I, I just couldn't imagine uh, being you know, part of any other family that would mean this much. Beautiful. Well, I'll put the soldier on website on the uh, the page for this episode as well. So I, we've been talking for two hours. Thank you so much for being generous. I got a few closing questions for you. Um, and I'll let you get on your way. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Ah, that's an easy one. Yeah. The, uh, the book of five ring by Miyamoto Musashi. Yeah, that is the that is the very first book that I ever read, uh, uh, you know, specifically referring to uh, combat strategy. And uh, and it was not only just that uh, as far as, you know, like, you know, combat itself for any of the folks who have actually, uh, you know, have read the Book of Five Rings. But it really did um, start to, you know, establish the framework for how I would see uh, this kind of training in general. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the Book of Five Rings by Musashi, was a, to me, is a highly recommended. Beautiful. All right. Well, then what about a, a movie and or a documentary? Oh, wow. A movie or a documentary. Oh, that's a, oh, that's a tough one. Jeez. Lone Wolf McQuaid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's an easy one. Yeah, <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, that really kind of, that really kind of sparked it off for me. Uh, I think that um, when when we think about these kind of things, it's, it's, it's those things that make that like you know lasting impact. You know, like I said, I, I still think about it to this day as the thing that kind of sparked that drive and that interest in me. So yeah, I think so. If you're gonna put me on the spot like that, yeah, for sure, I'd say yeah. Give it, you know. Now maybe some of the younger kids might not be uh, too connected to, but you know, you know, it's Chuck Norris, right? So it doesn't get better than that to me. So so I think that uh, yeah, Lone Wolf McQuaid. Absolutely. Well, one day, hopefully, I'm going to be able to get Chuck on here. That's my one of my goals. And I would love to ask him where the Chuck Norris memes came from. That you know, <laughs> where, where he's you know, larger than anything on this planet. That you know, Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups; he pushes the planet away, and all these. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that that really took on a life of its own. So, and I, I've seen a I've seen a few interviews in the past where uh, where Chuck has talked about that about how this this resurgence has happened. You know. Um, you know, actually not too long ago. Uh, and then all of a sudden it just kind of came out of nowhere. So, yeah. So I think he was kind of the same way. It just kind of popped up out of nowhere. But yeah. Beautiful. Well, that's a good segue. So the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, I would say Jocko. 
I don't know if uh, I don't think you've had him on, have you? Uh, I actually had him on twice, but it was the second oh. time was it was about a year ago. It was right when the the pandemic was first rolling out. Oh wow! Okay, see, I didn't realize if you had him on a show that, but yeah, you know, um, yeah, I have a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of respect for him. You say he's he's quite a speaker, and uh, and I've really uh, connected with a lot of different things that he's talked about. So, yeah, no, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, I forget yeah. The, the numbers now, but yeah, he came on once, um, and then I think it was like a year later, and I had a few of his echelon front friends too. So yeah, were a great group of men. Yeah, yeah. So he he's the one that pops my mind. Uh, I, I didn't realize it. I, I I didn't know if you had actually had him on yet or not. But yeah, no, definitely. Uh, he's uh, he's he's quite the um, quite an individual. Absolutely, and, uh, very very insightful. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you and reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Well, that's funny. Um, I would have to say, and for the folks who know me well, uh, I, I like to watch dumb movies. I like to watch movies that are, you know, just, you know, comedic movies uh, that are just, you know, silly. Uh, and because it, it takes me away from all of the serious stuff. Uh, and I, I find that uh, I just I just like to get lost in it, and it's just entertaining. Anything that will make me uh, that that's silly and that will make me laugh, that's what I like to do. And it just sort of uh, you know it gives that puts a smile on my face, and it, you know, it takes me away from all of the uh, the serious training. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, if people want to reach out to you, learn more, where are the best places to find out about you or the Combatives Program online? Well, on, online, uh, really the, the, um, the best way that they can reach out to me is uh, actually through uh, Team Evolution. So that's the, uh, the team that I, um, that I belong to and co-founded with, uh, uh, with Dan Gilmet. Uh, so we, uh, we're online. Uh, so you can reach out to me that way. Uh, it's easy to contact me uh, in, in that way. Uh, and then, um, and I would think that, you know, as far as the, uh, the online, um, you know, uh, Canadian Armed Forces combatives, uh, you know, if you, if you type that in, uh, then we, uh, we come up there as well. Brilliant. Well, Steve, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a, an amazing conversation. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an avid martial artist myself, but I've been very, you know, weekend warrior-esque. So to hear someone that's, you know, started so early, you know, entered jiu-jitsu early and judo early and then taught law enforcement you know um, combatives then got into the military then taught special operations i mean your your perspective is is such a powerful one so thank you so much for taking two hours to tell your story today well thank you very much james i, I really do appreciate you uh bearing with me and uh and uh taking some interest in uh, some of the things that have uh that i you know that i've experienced and uh, and some of my thoughts on the process like i said there's a lot of great people out there doing a lot of great thing, and it's uh, it's just a privilege to uh, you know to to meet uh, like-minded folks and uh, and uh, to also uh, you know share common experience in that. So so thank you very much for uh, for uh, taking interest in uh, in speaking with me today. Mm-hmm.